This is 660 New York. Be sure to buy the Journal American's big Thanksgiving Day special. See pages of Christmas gift suggestions. And watch for Social Security numbers worth $7,000 in this issue of the Journal American. It's the only evening newspaper published on Thanksgiving Day. You know, women have always wanted to have fine silverware, but a lot of ladies feel they just can't afford it. Makers of Citru Tissue have an answer for that problem, a wonderful answer. Right now, the Citru people are making it possible for everybody to own truly wonderful silver plate. It's 8.30 on Thanksgiving morning, November 25th. 1948. On the air from NBC is the Tex and Jinx show, hosted by husband and wife duo, reporter Tex McCrary, and actress Jinx Falkenberg. John Regan McCrary Jr. was born on October 13, 1910 in Calvert, Texas. He graduated in 1932 from Yale and began working for the New York Daily Mirror. In 1940, he was sent to interview actress Eugenia Lincoln Falkenberg, who is nine years his junior. She was the daughter of Eugene, a Westinghouse engineer, and Marguerite, a Brazilian tennis champion. By 1937, Jinx was modeling and acting, becoming one of America's leading cover girls. When she was interviewed for the musical comedy Hold On To Your Hats, she was struck by the charming Southern gentleman who had a way of getting her to open up. They were to be engaged when Pearl Harbor was attacked, and both spent the duration of the war performing various duties overseas. They were finally married on June 15, 1945. The following year, on April 22nd, the duo debuted their morning talk show on NBC's New York affiliate as High Jinx. You're on, and incidentally, you can't talk with a cigarette in your mouth. It's tough. It was unique to other breakfast talk shows in that Tex refused to sidestep controversial issues. There were discussions on the atomic bomb, the UN, and this interview with Hungarian photographer Robert Kappa, considered one of the best adventure and combat shooters in history. Uh, you've stopped being just a photographer, you've become a writer as well. H- how do you feel about this new life of yours? Oh, Tex, I don't know. I can tell you that when my book came out, fortunately, I wasn't here. So I wasn't sweating it out at all. I was in Moscow, and I was up at the embassy, and looking through the papers, I found New York Times, the Daily Times, which had a fairly big review, which I read through about two or three times, and couldn't make up my mind if it was favorable or not. Mm-hmm. So I went home with it, and there John Steinbeck, with whom I was traveling, kind of was looking at my pains. He's had a lot of experience reading reviews of his yeah. books. How did he feel about the review of your book? Oh, well, he said first that um, if I want to be any intelligent or something like that, I should not read them. So I got ashamed, and I went usually in the bathroom to reread my review. <laughs> For the fifth uh, or sixth time. Yes, he was disapproving of the whole thing. But you liked that first review that was in the uh, New York Daily Times, Bob? No, I couldn't make up my mind. He was patting me on the back and kicking me some other place. But then we left shortly after, and when we got to Prague, I wanted to buy every American newspaper, sure enough eager for other kind of information and little bit seeing if my book is in it. Kappa fled political repression in Hungary when he was a teenager, moving to Berlin, where he enrolled in college. He witnessed the rise of Hitler, which led him to move to Paris, where he formed a partnership with Gerda Taro. He covered the Spanish Civil War, the Second Sino-Japanese War, World War II's European Front, and in 1948, the Arab-Israeli War. And then I found other magazine, which again... Mm-mm. During his career, he risked his life numerous times, most dramatically as the only civilian photographer landing on Omaha Beach on D-Day. 
flying home. His friends and colleagues included yeah. Ernest Hemingway, Irwin Shaw, John Steinbeck, and director John Huston. In 1948, the Cold War was in full effect, and Kappa was one of the only men able to get into the USSR. That made me feel terribly well. They said you were great. Oh, terribly great, and I was in every respect all right. Unfortunately, I bought the Times again, and I was the Sunday Times reviewer who declared that I was about the dullest man he ever read. Oh, how (laughs) awful. I hope you kept reading the Tribune. No, what happened to me, I haven't seen a review since then. You haven't? No. John, in other words, now you're taking John Steinbeck's advice. Oh. Incidentally, I understand that, that he, we won't name the hotel where he works, but I understand that he got you out of bed this morning, cooked your breakfast. Does he do that every morning? Oh, he's writing very hard on a Russian trip, and uh, we work kind of together on it. He gets up earlier and cooks breakfast, can't deny that. Is John Steinbeck a good cook? Yeah, he's a very good cook. He can make sub-boiled eggs in three and a half minutes. <laughs> very good. Well, now let's get back to the story of your shooting in Russia. And by shooting, I mean photography. I don't mean being shot at or shooting at somebody. Yes, let's get back about the trip and find out about the trip. Well, now, how, how was it working in Russia? I mean, we, we on this side of the Iron Curtain, Bob, we... We get an idea that you've got 16 guys with guns looking over your shoulder every time you take a step, and then you have to battle sensors to get anything through. What is it like working with a camera on the other side of the Iron Curtain? You see, you say it already twice, Iron Curtain, and uh, I don't know, I do think the main Iron Curtain is a kind of pocket Iron Curtain. Everybody is carrying it in its own head. The other Iron Curtain, I don't know, it does exist a little bit, maybe, as, diffic- as borders are concerned. But I didn't have much trouble. You mean you shot whatever you wanted to and, uh, and, and had no trouble with censorship? Oh, this never happens that way, you know no, that. No, it isn't. I, I'm going to say, that's too perfect. Uh, but I was last winter in Turkey to shoot a movie for March of Time. Certainly it was... A- county which was supposed to be friendlier disposed than Russia and they had all interest too that I get that picture through and I had certainly more difficulties to shoot in Turkey than I had in Russia well Bob Kappa we're going to try to get you back on this program again but even during uncertain times there were many who felt gratitude with only one month until Christmas on November 25th 1948 it was time to carve turkeys hug family, and deck the halls for Thanksgiving Day. In Bob Kappa's book, Slightly Out of Focus, and the stories of Russia, they'll have to wait for John Steinbeck's book. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 109. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we continue our look at the 1948-49 radio season. We'll focus on news and programming from Thanksgiving Day, 1948. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme song is a festive rendition of Sleigh Ride as played by Al Kyola, 
Rizzo Ortolani, and Jimmy McGriff. It's a great tune to help usher in the holiday season. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash the Wallbreakers. And Burning Gotham, the new historical fiction audio drama set in 1835 in New York City, is on its way. Go to burninggotham.com for new teasers and more information. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. It's a cloudy, chilly Thanksgiving morning in New York City on November 25, 1948. The time is 9.15 a.m. We're at Herald Square outside Macy's flagship department store location. The most famous Thanksgiving Day parade in the United States is about to begin. CBS is covering the parade on TV for the first time. If for some reason you couldn't be at the parade, you might be tuned into the Mutual Broadcasting System's flagship WOR. It's broadcasting John Nesbitt's Passing Parade. The Passing Parade. Your favorite stories as told by your favorite storyteller. A man whose voice is familiar to millions of theater goers and radio listeners. Here's John Nesbitt to bring you some stories from The Passing Parade. On the reviewing stand again, any deed of heroism is always worth a story in the passing parade, and this is not because heroism is unusual. As a matter of fact, it is remarkably common. A woman will rush into a burning house to rescue her child and not even be aware of her heroism until the news photographers ask her to pose for pictures. Heroic deeds actually happen so frequently that the commission which awards the Carnegie Hero Medals is usually hard put to it to keep the medals from becoming too abundant. John Booth Nesbitt, grandson of actor Edwin Booth, was born on August 23, 1910 in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. He began working for NBC in San Francisco in 1933. His signature program, The Passing Parade, first began airing on NBC in 1937. It told of true tales almost too wild to believe. The next year, MGM commissioned a series of one-reel shorts, many of which featured famous people like Clark Gable, Ava Gardner, Lloyd Bridges, and FDR. By Thanksgiving morning, 1948, the show was airing for WOR in New York. It broadcast a syndicated episode on the incredible courage of common men and women. But only the most powerful explosive known to man is sufficient, pure nitroglycerin. And that is so treacherous a substance that sometimes just the removing of the cork from a bottle of it will cause it to explode and literally blast you to bits. The oil well shooter has one of the most dangerous jobs on the earth. No one has ever given him any insurance. He uses a long metal container, which is like a section of pipe. He fills it full of nitroglycerin, 
and he very cautiously lowers it into the well by a cord. Jim Hanks, one of the famous oil well shooters of America, was just filling his bomb with the oily explosive when he discovered a six-year-old boy standing right beside him. Everyone else had been ordered back a full quarter of a mile from the spot, and in horror, Jim drove the child away. Then he finished filling the bomb, he attached the cord, and he gingerly started lowering it into the casement of the well. The bomb fitted the casement like a projectile in a big gun, just as it was meant to do. Halfway down, Jim suddenly felt the line slacken, and he heard a hissing sound, and he let go the cord, and he ran for his life because he knew what had happened, that for some unaccountable reason, the well had suddenly started to flow, although he had not yet set off the charge, and the nitroglycerin bomb was being shot up out of the well by the pressure of the oil. Fifty feet from the spot, he heard a call. He looked up, and there, on one of the cross beams of the oil derrick, was the youngster. Hey, Jim, when are you going to shoot that well? In a few seconds, that entire derrick would only be a mass of splinters, and Jim turned, his heart like lead, and he raced back to the well, and standing right at the mouth of the shaft, he waited with outstretched fingers. He waited for one second, he waited for two seconds... The hissing grew to a roar, a cascade of black oil burst from the mouth of the well, and with it came the nitroglycerin bomb, and Jim's fingers closed around it, and he reeled back from the gusher of oil, carefully set down that bomb, and fainted out cold. Jim Hanks was not eligible for even a bronze Carnegie Hero Medal, because what he had done was merely performed in the line of duty. And what he got was a good old-fashioned ribbing for having fainted on the job. For heroism is actually quite a common thing among the plain, emotional, courageous people of America's Passing Parade. That's the first half of John Nesbitt's story on today's Passing Parade. While he's preparing his notes for the second portion, let's listen to some music from Victor Young. seems that the more things change, the more they stay the same, especially on Thanksgiving. p.m. Eastern Time from WOR in New York, the Penn Quakers took on Cornell University's Big Red in the 55th annual Turkey Bowl game in Philadelphia. Early in the first quarter, Cornell is driving hard. Frank Miller cuts off the left side of his line into the Penn secondary. He fumbles. Bradley recovers for Cornell. Both teams started their 1948 season hot. By Thanksgiving, Cornell was 7-1, while Penn was 6-2. Now, Philco's slow-motion camera shows you Cornell's first score. Bobby Dean cuts between end and tackle for the tally, and Cornell goes out in front, 7 to nothing. Coming in, Penn owned an all-time record of 39-12-3 in the annual game, including an eight-year winning streak. 
but Cornell's second-season coach, George Lefty James, had brought the team's conditioning to new heights. Watch this reverse play coming toward you. Reds Bagnell hands the ball to Bill Rose as the Quakers move downfield. The big red would snap the Thanksgiving losing streak, topping Penn 23-14, closing the season by snatching the last drumstick. Bagnell is back to pass. He lets it go. Falcone makes a great catch on the Cornell 15. I still think radio is probably the greatest entertainment medium ever invented. It made the audience work. And I think television audiences don't have to work, and that's why they fall asleep half of the time. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I really love it. And I really think that the commercial people, you know, whoever they are, who say whether we work or don't work, are making a big mistake. California, where you drive enormous distances, I have that radio on all the time, and I'd like to hear something good. I really love it. When we finally did the last suspense show in Hollywood, and it was all the people that you know who've been on every show you've ever heard from Hollywood in the old days, we were all sitting around, and finally Virginia Gregg, who was one of the great ladies of radio, and she looked around, she said, isn't it awful? She said, isn't it awful? She said, oh, God, if only television was going out and radio was coming in. <laughs> and it is true, too. We all felt that. <laughs> Hello there. Well, are you just uh, pushing your chair away from the table, or are you just pushing your chair up to the table? <laughs> pushing the food in. <laughs> well, happy Thanksgiving to you all. It's time for Happy Homes, and uh, what a treat you have in store for you today. Here's Norma Young. Come on in. Hello, and how are you all? Well, you know, I told you last week that we were going to again have a visitors, two visitors, and I'm very, very happy to have them. But before I present them to you, I do have something else that I want to tell you. You know, to paraphrase the song that we hear very, very often, somebody's coming to my house, well, may I say... While families on the West Coast were prepping Thanksgiving lunches and dinners, Norma Young's Happy Homes took to the air at 1.30 p.m. Pacific from mutual Don Lee's KHJ. Norma Young was a longtime resident of the San Fernando Valley and a professional cook. She traveled extensively, picking up recipes and making friends. She began hosting and directing Happy Homes on KHJ in 1937. On Thanksgiving Day, her guests were Margaret Mead and Violet Adams. The duo had recently authored Let This Be My Harvest, which told tales from Margaret's Italian family's childhood after they settled on the West Coast. The two ladies read passages from the book. And we enjoyed writing it. But there is an underlying significance in all of it. I mean Serena's profound desire to have her children learn. It's one of the strongest motivations in our book. The thing that drives her relentlessly beyond weariness and all her daily burdens. There's another passage in the book that tells this in Serena's own words. Oh, I know the one. Isn't that where Giovanni scolds Serena for studying all those long hours at night? Yes, that's the one. Oh, we'll read it, Violet. You know, I think every mother and father who hears it will find a sympathetic response to the urge in Serena. 
Giovanni finds his Serena asleep at the kitchen table. She has been studying all night, and dawn is already breaking. He wakes her. Like many a husband who is helpless before his wife's determination, he is both angry and tender in his fear that she will undermine her strength. He speaks to her in Italian. You are making a god of this learning, Serena. Many who came to America had no time to learn these things, yet their children became great men and women. Serena too speaks Italian. I don't want our children to be great, Giovanni. I only want them to be happy. If they want knowledge, I want to help them. My father did not believe women should be given learning. Learning was only for boys. My brother Mario was studying for the priesthood, and there was not enough money to help more than one of us. For me, the girl, there was only the work in the house, and too soon, marriage with a man who could feed and clothe me. The rest of us were forbidden to waste time and candles for reading. I used to watch Mario studying and reading the way a hungry child watches someone eating. I remember that feeling, Giovanni. I remember that hunger. I won't let it happen to our children. I don't want them hampered by the inability to speak a language so that their thoughts come out in halting sentences the way ours do when we speak English. I will learn to speak English. I will read so I can help them. I want them to grow in wisdom and in vision. These are the things I came to America to seek, Giovanni. Only I did not come young enough, nor soon enough. To help our children have all this, I too must have it. I will go on studying, Giovanni. You know, that is beautiful, and thank you, Violet. Those are the things that go into the building of our lives. It makes me think again how blessed and how fortunate are the children who have such parents. These are the men and the women who give America its strength. And I think many of us recall this good inheritance with profound gratitude as we gather together on holidays like these, Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter, universal days of good cheer that well does seem to tie all the world together. Yes, it is a good brotherhood, isn't it? People gathering around their tables or in churches to worship God. That's another reason for giving thanks today of all days, that here in America, each of us has the right to walk into our own house of worship whether it bears a cross or a star. Indeed, it's a wonderful reason for Thanksgiving. Yes, today brings me a mental picture of many, many such homes. And you know, Violet and Margaret, when I say mental pictures, you see, oh, for the last, well, for the last three days, we have been giving, oh, so much information over the telephone. What to do with the turkey? Where to put the turkey? Should Dad do this? Should Dad do that? And it's been just wonderful. But you can well imagine, can't you, that because we've had so much of this, I'm not going to eat turkey today. Oh, what a shame. <laughs> no, I'm going to have a good steak. <laughs> talk about it and don't want to eat it. Well, after that, I think I'll wait for about a week. But you know, when I have the mental picture of many such homes and all of you who listen to me daily and have become my friends, invisible but very, very real to me. And with you, I give thanks for all the good that was ours in years past and for all that we hope will be ours in the years ahead. There's going to be a lot of years ahead. We hope and good ones. Oh, sure they will. Sure they will. In 1948, the average cost for a 16-pound turkey was $2.65. Two pumpkin pies cost 90 cents. An entire Thanksgiving meal for four could be had for $5.81, or just under $50 today. You know how well I know the task that is ahead of many a homemaker today when it comes to the washing of the pan that the turkey or the chicken or the fowl or was roasted in. If the fat is burned a little, will it mean scouring and rubbing and using a bit of elbow grease? 
At last, at least that is what it used to be before Glim, G-L-I-M, the amazing new liquid, came to be perfected. And that is why I hope you have taken my suggestion and got a bottle of it today. If not, you will when I tell you how easy that roasting can can be washed. Just take off the cap of the bottle of Glim and measure a cap full of it. Add it to the roasting pan, add water to cover the browned area, and sometimes you know you have to fill the pan for it's browned all over. Let it alone while you're uh, doing other things, and you'll find that when you come back to wash that roasting pan, it's not the task that you had dreaded. Glim has dissolved the grease, has loosened the particles, and you know it's no effort at all to get busy and do all the things that need to be done. Of course, use Glim, too, in the washing of your dishes, your finest glassware, and see how wonderful it looks. So here it is, easy, happy dishwashing time for you with Glim. And, you know, I think it will be just grand if some of those husbands might get in there and help us a little bit, just as I was telling yesterday. So many times a wife does all the cooking and all that, and hubby sits down. Of course, hubby does feel that... Um, that if he, if he carves, that he's done a good job. But don't you think, girls, that the men of the house or the man of the house should do the carving? They certainly should, but most of them evade it. Oh, dear. But I, oh, I said yesterday, <coughs> if they'd only realize how marvelous they look when they stand at the head of the table, so they strong. They certainly look like the head of the house. <laughs> That's appeal to the men's vanity. Uh, yes, sir. Well, I, I think there's two of our announcers there that just love it. I know there's Dick Quinn, and he just loves to carve, and he's a wonderful carver, too. He's a wonderful carver. I've been to his house, and I've seen him carve. And so Bob Freed, too, the professor, he carves, too. I haven't seen Labby, but I think he can do it, too. Most men don't want uh, to. Well, friends, we do hope you'll have a very, very happy day. And just before we came down, I found a very lovely prayer for Thanksgiving, and I'm asking the girls if they'll read it, will you? This yeah no this one right here that lovely one I'll read that part and and Violet will read that will be grand all right we give thanks for love of man for fellow men for kindly words of cheer for friendly lifts for burdened hearts when life is dark and drear for faith that laughs at battles lost and closes up the ranks for strength for hope and brotherhood. Oh, God, we give thee thanks. Thank you so much. And again, I want you to know that you've been listening to Margaret Lee and Violet Atkins, co-authors of Let This Be My Harvest. And a happy day. And until tomorrow, adios. This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like gazpacho? But gazpacho is supposed to be served cold. Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother. That villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow.
I enjoyed the people in it, too. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of loyalty, camaraderie. Mm -hmm. See, we were together so much. In the beginning, there were, oh, I think, 1,500 members of AFRA, then mm -hmm. AFRA. Uh, they figured about 400, 450 did practically all of the work. Mm -hmm. Of course, that wasn't very many. And we spent a great deal of time together, and that was before the days of tape. Mm -hmm. Or even on tape, lots of times you spent many hours together. But we would have a break. You didn't have long enough to go anywhere. We got to know each other very, very well. And our problems, they mm -hmm. were like family. We'd hear about somebody who was having kind of a rough time. We'd go to one of the other producers and say, gee, Dick's having a hard time paying his rent. Do you think there's anything for him next week? And they'd get behind him and he'd be working. So you'd all act as perhaps an agent for someone yeah, else. Yeah, for could. everybody else. It really is a nice family kind of it relationship. It was. It was. Very, we were very close and very loving, mm -hmm. very caring. Fastidious women know that hair must be washed frequently and thoroughly to keep it not only lustrous, but what's more important, fresh and cleanly fragrant. These women are smart. They shampoo regularly with mulsified coconut oil shampoo. For emulsified leaves no afterfilm to become unpleasant, but makes hair soft, gleaming, and always cleanly fragrant. Remember, emulsified coconut oil shampoo. From Hollywood, we present... Bride and Groom. With your master of ceremonies, John Nelson. Good afternoon. They say it's the woman who's always late. But that isn't true of the couple we'll meet at our bride and groom wedding party at the Chapman Park Hotel here today. Because on the first date our bride and groom ever had, he kept her waiting two hours. Well, you'd think that would about nip any romance in the bud, but apparently it didn't, and there's much more to it. For now the couple will be married out in the old chapel under the trees after they've told us their story. First... Here is our own Jack McElroy. At 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time, bride and groom took to the air for ABC from KECA in Hollywood. During its five-year run between November 26, 1945 and September 15, 1950, bride and groom told stories of almost 1,000 couples. Though the actual ceremony was done privately at a chapel in the Chapman Park Hotel in Los Angeles, the couple was introduced before and interviewed immediately afterward. Watch what happens. A couple each day was united. They got on the show by telling their stories in letters to producer John Reddy. John Nelson hosted, Roberta Roberts handled backstage details, Jack McElroy sang, and Gaylord Carter played the organ. The minister was often Reverend Alden Hill. Each couple was given wedding rings, appliances, silver, and sent on a flying honeymoon to the location of their choice. Also remember that Bayer aspirin has been used without ill effect by millions of normal people. When you buy, ask for it by its full name, Bayer Aspirin. Never by the name Aspirin alone. 25 cents for 24 Bayer Aspirin tablets, virtually one set a tablet. Here's to the bride and groom on their joyous wedding day. Let's toast the lucky pair. Got them on their way. 
we wish them every happiness today. Oh, a very charming young couple. It's a pleasure to introduce our bride, Miss Betty Garvin. Her groom is Mr. Walter Marshall. Betty, you're a very charming young bride. Are you a little bit nervous today? Yes, I am. Mm -hmm. Walter? Same here. (laughs) (laughs) But it wouldn't be traditional if you weren't. Uh, I understand you had saw some action during this last war, Walter. Yes. Mm-hmm. Were you as nervous then as you are now? Never. <laughs> <laughs> well, this lasts a lot longer than any action he's seen. <laughs> Tell me a few things. Let's get acquainted, if you will. Well, I'm 19 years old, and I came to California five years ago. You better talk a little louder, too. <laughs> okay. With your family, they moved here? Yes, uh-huh. How many in your family? Well, there's five children, and my father and mother. Boys or girls? One sister. And three brothers. Mm-hmm. That came out right. I'm surprised. <laughs> Where'd you say you were born? In Atoka, Oklahoma. In what? Atoka, Oklahoma. Atoka. Uh-huh. You see? <laughs> and you moved out here five years ago. Yes, You uh-huh. finished your schooling here. Yes. Did you go to work then? Yes, sir. And do you work now? Yes, sir. You going to continue to work? Yes, sir. For about how long? Until we start our family. Until what? We start our family. Oh, I see. <laughs> Oh, that's very sensible and very, very honest procedure about the whole business. Walter, about you, please. Well, I was born in McAllister, Oklahoma, and, well, I don't know when I moved. I've moved so much that I can't keep track of it. <laughs> How old are you? Twenty-two. How many in your family? I have three brothers, no sister, my mother and father. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that's uh, four in your family and five in yours. Do you think four or five children is, is the right size family? No, three. Three is right. That's right. <laughs> we agree on that. Uh, you were in service? Yes. In what branch? Navy and the Merchant Marine. Where all did you serve? Well, in Persia, in Arabia, China, Shanghai and Hong Kong, Siam and the Philippines. We're very proud of young men who gave so much to make our victory possible. <laughs> Walter, others may forget about the young man, but we sure aren't going to hear, and we hope nobody else does. Anyway, what's your civilian occupation? I'm an electrician for an electrical contractor. An uh, electrician? Yes. I think he made a pretty good connection here, don't you? <laughs> I sincerely do. She's, yeah. very, she's very lovely. What? You bet she is. You betcha! Ah, <laughs> oh, that's grand. That is the proper attitude that you both have towards each other. What are your eyes, green? Just about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what color do they get when she's mad, Walter? Oh, they spit fire. <laughs> <laughs> that's cute. Well, you two have a very wonderful, tender love story, and it's sort of a, a typical American love story. I mean, uh, I don't think it could happen anywhere else. And all I want to know is who's going to tell us all about it before you go out to the chapel. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> you have the go-ahead. Oh, well, I met him uh, September 15, 1945. And, and how did you meet him? Under what circumstances? Well, my maid of honor introduced me to him. How, would, how did that happen? Well, she told me about him for a long time before I ever met him. and Build-up talk? Oh, yes. <laughs> and uh, I talked to him on the telephone before I ever got to go out with him and... And I had all planned to go out with him, and he was two hours late. (laughs) That's a fine beginning. You mean that you got all ready for a date. Were you going to go out with him? Yes. And the two of you were going out, and... No, three couples. Three couples. She was long. She introduced me to him. you got yourself all fixed up, and he was two hours late. Two hours late. You know, in view of the fact that he's going to be a married man in about three minutes, I think it's appropriate to find out how he got out of that one. (laughs) Well, the P.E. ran into a car... Ask the best man. He about <laughs> Even Thanksgiving Day is a great time to get married. You aren't going to have a best man along to vouch for it. You better be, you better be a little more convincing in future stories.
instead of a big, ugly glass picture tube, you saw the performers in your own mind. You painted your own big-as-life version of each moment with that loving, creative brush we call imagination. You know, I was involved in little plays when I was in, even as long ago as in eighth grade, and then I went into the, in high school, I did the elocution contest, and in college, the oratorical contest, and I played a few plays then in high school and college, both. And then I didn't do anything for quite a while. I did study law, but not very hard and not very long <laughs> at uh, both Georgetown University and Wisconsin University. And it was while I was at, the, at Wisconsin University that I did a number of plays. I wound up doing a number of plays. The first one was Devil's Disciple, Shaw's Devil's Disciple. And then in the summer of 1929, I was out of law school by that time, and they wouldn't allow me back into, uh, <laughs> into the school. I wanted to switch to a uh, Bachelor of Science and, and major, in, uh, major in speech, and they wouldn't allow that, but they did let me come back and play Lilium when I wasn't even in school, <laughs> and then hired me for the summer to do four shows. And then from there, I, I went to New York, although I did. In the meantime, I played with the stock company. You know, Don, it's difficult when we have someone of your stature on the program to confine his career to one medium, but we are going to talk about radio tonight, and so we want to find out where it all began. I know that as far as network radio is concerned, it was Chicago. Is this where it started for you? Yes. A sustaining program was the first coast-to-coast -coast show that I ever had. That was in August of 1930. Then I started coast-to-coast -coast on a program called Empire Builders for Great Northern Railroad. Great Northern Railway presents... Empire Builders. That started in September of 1930, and then in, I believe it was either late March or early April of 1931, I took over First Nighter, and I did that until June of 1937. Also, a show called Grand Hotel on Sunday afternoons, and the only other network that I had in that time, and this is the only soap opera I did, was a thing called Betty and Bob, and I did mm -hmm. that for two years. makers of fine American watches for over 80 years presents its seventh annual Thanksgiving Day Greeting to America. Two hours of stars broadcast throughout the United States to our veterans, hospitals, and servicemen overseas by Armed Forces Radio and shortwave round the world. In the next two hours, the Elgin Watch Company brings you Don Amici, Mario Lanza, Gary Moore, Jimmy Durante, the Mills Brothers, Vera Vaig, Andre Previn, Bob Hopkins, Jack Benny, Francis Langford, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, the Bickersons, and Red Skelton with the Elgin Orchestra and Chorus under the direction of Robert Armbruster. I'm Ken Carpenter, and here is your host for the full two hours, Don Amici. There's an old and wonderful word of welcome for this day, ladies and gentlemen. It's Happy Thanksgiving. And in behalf of the Elgin Watch Company, the Elgin Jewelers, and all the stars gathered together here in Hollywood, may I say Happy Thanksgiving and welcome to Two Hours of Stars. 
Originally conceived and shortwaved overseas seven years ago as Elgin's way of bringing a little bit of home to our men and women in the service during the holidays, its presentation every Thanksgiving and Christmas Day has been continued through the years as a public service, symbolizing the goodwill and fellowship Americans share together during the holidays. And here to start the festivities is the young Metro-Golden-Mare star discovery regarded by many as the greatest tenor since Caruso, Mario Lanza. At 4 p.m. Eastern Time, Elgin Watch's 7th Annual Thanksgiving Day Special took to the air from NBC's KFI in Hollywood with Don Amici acting as MC. Elgin Watches incorporated in August of 1864, eventually basing their operations in the growing city of Elgin, Illinois. By the turn of the 20th century, it was one of the largest watch manufacturers in the world. During World War II, all civilian manufacturing was halted. The company moved into defense, manufacturing military watches, chronometers, fuses for artillery shells, aircraft instruments, and cannon bearings. Their agency of record, J. Walter Thompson, confined radio sponsorship to their annual Thanksgiving and Christmas specials. They began in 1942. The 1948 Thanksgiving special was significant for giving Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, who were stelling out nightclubs, some large radio exposure. NBC would give them their own radio show in March of 1949. Two hours of stars will continue after a short pause for station identification. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. WNBC, New York, pioneer station of the national broadcasting company. The Elgin Watch Company's 7th Annual Two-Hour Thanksgiving Day Greeting to America, our hospitalized veterans and servicemen overseas and neighbors around the world, continues with Don Amici, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, Vera Vague, Red Skelton, Francis Langford, the Bickersons, the Mills Brothers, Andre Previn, Mario Lanza, and the Elgin Orchestra and Chorus under the direction of Robert Armbruster. And here again is your host for these two hours of stars, Don Amici. Once again, may I say to those of you who have just joined us, Happy Thanksgiving and welcome to Two Hours of Stars. This is the seventh straight year the Elgin Watch Company and the Elgin Jewelers have invited your favorite stars to join us in our holiday open house. And each year it has been our custom to invite several young newcomers, stars of tomorrow who we believe are worthy of inclusion on our guest list. Just such a newcomer is that tall, tan, good-looking young fellow who's been attracting attention as the saner half of a nightclub combination known as Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Elgin presents Dean Martin. Everyone knows she's a rambling rose. She's a beauty grown wild. Birds in their nests seem to whistle her best. Four years later, when the comedy duo were big stars, 
They spoke with Cedric Adams of WCCO Minneapolis, St. Paul. I can hear a lot of background noises. Where are you and Jerry speaking from now? Your dressing room? Yes, we're right now in our dressing room. What's the name of the movie you're working on now? Well, there's a little thing called Scared Stiff. It's about, well, uh, a few gangsters, and I think that I have shot someone, but I haven't. And uh, we're going on an island, going to a haunted house, and uh, we have a couple zombies, and they scare the hell out of us. How do you guys get along with your writers? Well, they're drunk all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Do you use the same writers for your movies as you do for television and radio? They're all right. Yeah, we have our own writers on this script. It's a very good thing for both Jerry and I. We're always together in every scene, and we do a lot of, you know, all that crazy stuff. Hey, uh, Jerry, how did you and Dean get together originally? We started in Atlantic City six years ago. I was doing a single, and they wanted another act, and I recommended Dean because he was my pal, and he was a big hit, and we wound up doing a double. We still don't know how it worked, but we're on radio this fall for Chesterfield again, and we're doing a big show. Do you ever have any trouble with the other members of the cast? Oh, we fool around a lot, but nothing I can put my finger on. You know, uh, we know that uh, all of those little uh, sketches that you use and those little odd bits aren't written. What's your secret for being able to throw in all of that spontaneous humor? Well, we don't know. We just thank the good Lord who gave us the ability to be able to uh, throw in all that stuff. Well, you certainly do a miraculous job of it. Ah, that is fine, Dean. And I can tell by Miss Vera Vague's expression that she agrees with me. What do you think of Miss Vague? Oh, wonderful. Just wonderful. Oh, I have plenty to be thankful for this Thanksgiving day. You really like my singing, Miss Vague? Oh, you mean you sing too? Oh, Oh, yes, of course. In fact, I was surprised how much you sounded like Bing Crosby. Well, Bing's always happy to give a boy a start. Yes, he must be. He started four of them. (laughs) You know... Mr. Martin, after looking at you closely, I'd say you were definitely a cross between Cary Grant. Cary Grant and who else? Who cares? Don't be a pig. (laughs) Uh, You're quite a study, Miss Vague. Oh, yes, and I'd be glad to help you with your homework any (laughs) time. You know, Mr. Martin, I can assist you up the road to fame and fortune. Thanks, Miss Vague, but uh, Jerry Lewis is my partner. He's got to go up that road, too. Well, if he looks anything like you, I'd be glad to carry him piggyback. Well, here he is, Miss Vague, Jerry Lewis. Dean, what's going on here? I've never seen so many... Oh, Mr. Lewis, Mr. Lewis, I've heard so much about you. I feel I've already met you. (laughs) Well, don't just stand there looking at me. Say something. Are you for real? <laughs> Jerry may seem a little strange at first, Miss Vague, but he's really very clever. He and Dean were on Bob Hope's program Tuesday night, and Hal Wallace is starring them in the picture of my friend Irma. Yes, I'm really lovely. You know, of course, they want me back at Slapsy Maxie. <laughs> <laughs> if you ask me, Maxie slapped you once too often. <laughs> oh, is that so? Well, I think it's only fair that you should give credit where credit is due, Miss Vague. It so happens I taught D. Martin everything he knows. What did you teach him, Jerry? I got him a rat trap and taught him to catch rats the same way I do. I got a big yellow rat about 104 feet and a little pink eye he's got and with a hand that hangs over the ear. It's the most beautiful thing. Hold there. (laughs) Jerry, you keep that up and I'll have to cut off your pablum. Oh, no, no, Dean. You couldn't do that. Anything but that. Anything. You hear? Sure, I'm here. How do you like it here? (laughs) Mr. Lewis, you 
would make a perfect mate for an idiot. Thank you, but you'll have to ask my father. <laughs> I can't understand where you ever got such a partner, Mr. Martin. After all, you have Cary Grant's je ne sais quoi. You have Bing Crosby's joie de vivre. Well, give him back to them. Do you want the cops after us? <laughs> you need someone with intelligence as a partner, Mr. Martin. I do? Yes, you do. And I... Well, I've taken part in so many discussion groups. Uh, I can discuss anything. Yeah, well, I can be just as disgusting as you can. <laughs> I don't mind telling you, young man, when men look at me, they think of Rita Hayworth. When men look at you, they think of Rita Hayworth? Yes. Can you blame them? <laughs> now, look, look, Jerky. That Jerry. Jerky. See? It's oh. written right here. J-E-R-K-Y. Jerry. <laughs> Little tipsweet. Mr. Martin. Mr. Martin, come here. Just look at all the famous partnerships of history. There was always a woman. There was Anthony and Cleopatra, Romeo and Juliet. Martin and Lewis. Yes, but you're a boy. I am? How do you like that? My parents never told me nothing. Well, <laughs> whatever I may be, Miss Vague, I want you to know you'll never be able to break us up. Dean and I will always stick together like glue. Well, what makes you so sure? I'll use glue. <laughs> I wouldn't help you in any shape or form. With that shape and form, you need more help than we do. Are you for real? I... <laughs> I'd tell you to go soak your head if I had a pointed bucket handy. Now, see what you did, Jerry? Miss Vague left covered with confusion. So what? She looks better with a cover. You... <laughs> You told me she was a slick chick. She's no slick chick. What is she? She's a plump rump. <laughs> Look at the way she talked to me. Stop. Do you think I'm an imbecile? So you're beginning to wonder too, huh? <laughs> Jerry, don't you realize the only way you can make an impression on people is by being debonair, sophisticated, and suave? I don't want to be a debonair, sophisticated slob. <laughs> Jerry... The trouble with you is you're too sure of yourself. You're conceited. Dean, you know that is not true. I used to be conceited, but I went to a psychiatrist and got myself cured. And now I'm one of the nicest guys I know. <laughs> you, um, you went to a psychiatrist? Yes. He said I was the mousy type, so I showed him my rat. He got down on the floor at me and saw the little blue one that had the ear that hung uh, over the eye. He had a busted claw, but uh, you can see the way he went. The room and... <laughs> Jerry, if you expect to be my partner, you've got to change entirely. Bye. Bye. Where are you going? Up to the hotel to change entirely. <laughs> I've tried to be worthy of you, Dean. I went to the May Company and tried to get a job in the long underwear department, but all the man would say was, sorry, no opening for you. I can't understand that, Jerry. I really think you've always been the epitome of perspicacity. Oh, there you go, insulting me again. Well, all I can tell you is that I'm sick of it. Do you hear? Thick, thick, thick. Oh, you can laugh if you want to. Naturally, you think it's very funny. Funny. <laughs> but it isn't. You see, you don't know the circumstances. It just so happens that I haven't been too well. I, uh, 
What's the matter with you? You, you got a cold? Sir? Yes, you know how most show people are born in trunks. Yeah. I didn't have anything on at all. <laughs> for myself when I object to your insults, Dean. I'm thinking of my sister. You don't know how my sister suffers. If I were your brother, I wouldn't feel so good either. You know, I haven't been trying to insult you, Jerry. I'm your friend. We've been pals together, standing side by side, hand in hand. You're right, Dean. When we walk hand in hand, the world becomes a wonderland. It's magic. You sigh, the song begins, you speak, and I hear violins. It's magic. How else can I explain those rainbows when there is no rain? It's magic. No, I, uh, I'm serious, Jerry You remember the time you got locked in our closet And you couldn't get out? Yeah Who fed the goldfish for three weeks? You did, my friend And when you disappeared and nobody heard from you Nobody knew where you were And nobody had the slightest idea where to locate you Who finally found you? My draft board. <laughs> if you really like me, Dean, you'll try and help me. You'll soothe me, and you'll hold my head. Why, Jerry, of course I'll hold your head. Thank you. I'll pick it up in the morning. <laughs> Jerry, you've got to get a grip on yourself. We're making a picture together. We're making records. Remember the record we made for Capitol? No, but I remember the record I made catching rats. 191 at one time. This big black one crawled across my path, and I got him, see? And I grabbed a swan of a stepper, and I said, come to me. My little Well, you all right now? Yeah, but my eyeballs busted. <laughs> See, in radio, you could visualize everything yourself, like my vault scenes were easier to do on radio than in television. Now, the reason my character sustained so many years, like you say, how could things go on and on? I played a character that included all the faults and the frailties of mankind. See, every family had somebody like me. Either they had an uncle who was stingy, or one who thought he was very sexy and he wasn't. So every family has that kind of a person. The different characterizations, you know, we made Phil Harris a sort of a smart-alecky guy. He either left a pool room, or a bar, or a girl. Nearly every good comedian has good timing. They, they couldn't be good without it. Burns has great timing. Ed Wynn had the greatest. Gracie Allen had probably the greatest. She was the great of all time on King of Timing. You have to have real good timing or you can't exist as a comedian. After Martin Lewis performed, Jack Benny showed up with Frank Nelson and Sarah Berner. To our 
Stars of Stars, the Elgin Watch Company's seventh annual two-hour Thanksgiving Day greeting to the nation continues with Don Amici, Jack Benny, Francis Langford, Vera Vague, Mario Lanza, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, Red Skelton, the Bickersons, the Mills Brothers, Andre Previn, and the Elgin Orchestra and Chorus under the direction of Robert Armbruster. And here again is your host, Don Amici. It's with good reason that America gives thanks today. Thanks not only for our fields and farms, our forests and fisheries, but for the native ability and creative genius of our scientists, our artists, those who make the clothes we wear and, and the food we eat. And let's not forget the American housewife. She it was who had to plan today's dinner, to worry about the budget, to shop wisely and save a few pennies here and there. It is in her honor that the Elgin Watch Company and the Elgin Jewelers now present a guest who is intimately familiar with the problems of the housewife and knows from first-hand experience her bitter struggle to keep her table nutritious and plentiful in the face of rising prices. I refer to Mr. Jack Benny. About three days ago, I was in my car driving down Sunset Boulevard when I noticed a hitchhiker standing on the corner. He was waving his thumb at me. Hey, mister. Hey, mister, how about a lift? Going downtown, mister? Get off of my running board, you bum, before I call... Why, it's Jack Benny. Yes, I... Oh, Don Amici. Oh, gee, I'm glad you drove by, Don. Can I ride down a few blocks with you? Oh, certainly, Jack. Glad to have you. It's a great help, Don. I'm doing my Thanksgiving shopping for a turkey, and it's hard to get around without a car, you know. Without a car? What happened to yours? Well, it's in the shop. I had a terrible accident, you know... Some young kid crashed into me from behind and crumpled up the whole back of my car. Oh, must have hit you pretty hard. What was he driving? A bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> but it was one of those three-wheelers, and they're heavy, you know. It's a... <laughs> Lucky nobody was hurt. <laughs> Whoops! Watch it, Don. You came awfully close to that truck. Why, you're not nervous, are you, Jack? Well, no, but... Uh... Don, is it all right if I get off this running board and sit inside? <laughs> I, I'd feel a lot safer. Oh, I'm sorry, Jack. I should have suggested it sooner. Come on, hop in. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, where do you want me to drop you off, Jack? Oh, down here a few blocks. Uh, you know that swanky market where all the movie stars shop? I think it's called the Ritz. Oh, of course I know. The place is very expensive. Well, I do my shopping just around the corner from there. <laughs> it's called Max's Thrifty Low Price Cut Rate Market. <laughs> it's, uh, it's three flights up there. How did you ever find a place like that? Well, there's an old clothes dealer in the same building, and every now and then I pick up a bargain. <laughs> you can stop at this corner, Don. Well, here you are, Jack. Oh, darn it, I ripped my sleeve. There's luck for you. Adolph Manju wore this suit for ten years. Nothing ever happened to him. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Don. You're welcome, Jack. Oh, by the way, Don, I'll be finished with my shopping in 20 minutes, so if you're coming back this way, I won't have to call for a taxi. No, it takes so long to get one. Well, I I'm sorry, Jack, but I won't be coming back for at least three hours. Oh, good, then I'll wait for you. There, there. <laughs> I'll see you later, Don. So long, Jack. 
Well, I'd better hurry upstairs before the turkeys are all sold out. In 1948, Jack Benny organized his activities into a corporation. His hope was to secure a favorable deal with NBC so that he could be taxed under capital gains laws at 25%. NBC's parent company was RCA. Their head, David Sarnoff, refused. Well, this is the second floor. Hmm, there's a new dentist here where the plumber used to be. Same office. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Would you care to have any teeth pulled? No, no, thank you. Any leaks fixed? No. No, no, I'm just going upstairs to the market. So. Well, this is the third floor. Gee, there's a taxidermist here now. H.G. Smith, taxidermist. Good morning, sir. Oh, good morning. Uh, have you any birds, reptiles, or animals that you'd care to have preserved? No, no, thank you. I'm just going upstairs to the market. I'm getting my Thanksgiving turkey. Well, bring it down. We'll stuff it for you. <laughs> no, no, I'll stuff it myself. I just want it to look good for a couple of days, you know. Phew. Stairs are steep. Well, I guess the man loses some of his pep when he's nearing 40. <laughs> Well, here's another floor. See, a lot of new people have moved in here. Meredith Grimes, mortician. Good morning, sir. Would you like... Keep to... your bony hands off of me. <laughs> I'm going upstairs to get a turkey. Now, let's see. I'll need a vegetable to go with the turkey. Maybe I'll get a can of peas. But I won't get the tiger brand this time. They're... Only 327 peas to the can. <laughs> Every other brand has 334. Acme only has 330, but they're the giant size. Well, at last. Hmm, the poultry department looks pretty crowded. I better get in here before there's nothing left. Hello, Mr. Benny Boy. Wow. Well, hello, Mr. Kitzel. What are you doing here? I'm doing my Thanksgiving shopping. <laughs> did I just buy a turkey? Oh, did you get a real big one? Well, who do you think this is standing next to me? My wife? <laughs> I'm sorry, that comb had me fooled there. <laughs> Say, what is, what is a... That is a good-sized turkey. How are you going to stuff it? Well, I'll put in some herring, some matcha balls, chopped liver, a couple of bagels, and I'll cover the whole thing with sour cream. <laughs> well, well, Mr. Kitzel, won't that spoil the turkey? Who eats the turkey? <laughs> Oh, then, then, then why did you buy it? Mr. Benny, what's Thanksgiving without a turkey? Oh, oh, I see. Well, I'm going to do my shopping now. Goodbye, Mr. Kitzel, and a happy Thanksgiving. The feeling is identical. Thank you. After Amos and Andy jumped to CBS in October of 1948, Lou Wasserman and Taft Schreiber, president and VP of the Music Corporation of America, called head of CBS William Paley to see if he was interested in a similar deal with Jack Benny. Well, I might as well 
I'll go in and get it over with. Hey, Sam, look who just came in here. Oh, no, you take him, Joe. In November, David Sarnoff got word and sent NBC president Niles Trammell to California with orders to keep Benny at NBC. But Sarnoff refused to be there. William Paley called Benny direct and flew to L.A. to meet in person, agreeing for CBS to buy Benny's corporation for $2.26 million. NBC responded by doubling the offer. However, Lou Wasserman obtained the NBC contract, changed every mention of NBC to CBS, and reoffered the deal to Benny, who then signed it. Uh, hello, Sam. Hi, Joe. I'd like to look at a nice turkey. Well, there they are hanging up. Look at them. Oh, yes. Hey, that third one from the end is cute. She has nice legs. That's a Tom! Oh, oh. Well, what are you getting for them? Huh? Well, the Washington turkeys are 90 cents a pound, the Oregon turkeys are 80 cents a pound, and the California turkeys are 70 cents. Mm-hmm. Have you got anything a little further south? <laughs> Something for about 60 or 40 cents. Have you got any Mexican turkeys? <laughs> a Mexican turkey? Uh, Wait a minute, how's this? How much is it? Sixty centavos a pound. Centavos? Si, si, senor. Now cut that out! <laughs> Look, I want a nice plump one, about six pounds. Six pounds? <laughs> Listen, Benny, I don't know where you got your information, but the only way you can get a six-pound turkey is to hatch the egg and kill it as it steps out of the shell. <laughs> Well, then get the smallest one you have and let me see what it weighs. Okay. Here's a scrawny one. There. That Wait a minute. Up. Take that heavy brown paper off the scale. <laughs> you think you got a sucker here? What are you trying to pull? I'm not trying to pull anything. That paper is just to keep the scale clean. Well, keep it clean at your own expense. <laughs> Take your big fat thumb off of there, too. That's better. Well, that's a little over seven pounds. That'll be 4.30. I'll take it. You better clean it for me. I suppose you want the feet. Yes, I use them for back scratchers. <laughs> Although Benny was signed, Paley next had to convince sponsor American Tobacco to make the move. He did so by guaranteeing that CBS would pay the cigarette giant $3,000 per week for every ratings point lost after the migration. Floored that Paley would offer such a proposal. All parties agreed immediately. If it's any of your business, I have a badminton court and it makes a very good shuttlecock. I want the heart, the liver, and the gizzard, too. Well, this is going to be a shock to you, Benny, but we threw away the feathers. Well, don't be funny. Now wrap it up. And here's your money. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute, I'm missing a dollar. It's gone. I must have dropped it. A dollar. It's got to be here somewhere. I had it when I came in. Now, now, take it easy. You'll find it. Oh, here's something. That's a dollar bill. That's it, that's it. Give me it, give me it, give me uh, it. Just a second. How do we know this is your dollar bill? It was lying on the floor behind the counter. It's my dollar, I tell you. I can prove it. The serial number is E662593471E, series 1935C. Now, give me my turkey and let me get out of here. Hey, Don! Oh, Don Amici! Hello, Don. Jack, are you still here? Sure, I've been waiting for you. You said you'd be back, you know. 
But I was delayed. I thought, sure, you'd take a taxi home. How long have you been waiting? Since 10.30 this morning. But, Jack, it's after midnight. <laughs> it is? Yes. Gosh, you must have been lonesome. No, no, I had the turkey with me. We didn't... <laughs> Well, hop no, in, I'll drive you home. Well, thanks, thanks. Well, did you get a nice turkey, Jack? Oh, a beauty. It's imported, you know. It comes from Mexico. And they're the very best. A Mexican turkey? Yes. Instead of chestnuts, you stuff it with chili con carne. There, it's, <laughs> it's very tasty. Say, how come you know so much about turkeys? What? What'd you say, Don? I said, how come you know so much about turkeys? Did you ever see the horn blows at midnight? <laughs> Drive on, Mr. Amici. Drive on. On Thanksgiving in 1948, William Paley had plenty to be thankful for. While Jack Benny was appearing on NBC for this Elgin special, CBS announced on their evening news that the Jack Benny program would be jumping to CBS. When asked that evening by the United Press, Benny declined to comment. It touched off a firestorm between the two networks. NBC claimed any such deal was unlawful. David Sarnoff later said that no comedian was irreplaceable. It was the biggest mistake of Sarnoff's career. Jack Benny would leave NBC at the end of the year. Thanksgiving is only the beginning of the holiday season, and so on behalf of the Elgin Watch Company and all the Elgin jewelers, may I invite you to join us again on December 25th when Elgin presents two hours of stars on Christmas Day. With Bob Hope, Edgar Bergen, Charlie McCarthy and Mortimer Snurd, Laurie Smelkior, Al Jolson, Cass Daly, Ozzie and Harriet, Danny Thomas, Joe Stafford, and many others. This is Don Amici saying good night and happy holidays. For making it possible for the Elgin Watch Company of Elgin, Illinois, to bring you the seventh annual two-hour Thanksgiving Day greeting, the Elgin Watch Company would like to add that Jimmy Durante can be heard on the Camel Show on this same station every Friday night. Red Skelton joined us to the courtesy of Procter & Gamble's Tide and Camay and Metro Goldwyn Mayer, producers of The Three Musketeers with Lana Turner, Gene Kelly, and June Allison. Gary Moore can be heard on Eversharp's Take It or Leave It every Sunday night on this same station. And Don Amici can be heard regularly on the Charlie McCarthy program. Two Hours of Stars was produced by Earl Eby and John Crist and written under the supervision of Ed Helwig. This is Ken Carpenter saying good night. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, 
Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not so classic story from the old time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcasts from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. The William O. McKay Company, the Northwest's largest and leading Ford dealer, presents the commentary of Fulton Lewis, Jr. I started with W.R. in February 1922, about the time when Bamberger received the license to broadcast, and this license was issued at that time by the Department of Commerce. We went to Washington in the morning, prepared an application for a wireless telephone license. We submitted it to the clerk, the clerk filled out a license, and we came back in the afternoon with a license. We bought an old DeForest transmitter, promptly put it on the air, and on February the 22nd, 1922, was the inauguration date of WOR. And we endeavored to make this February 22, 1922, because the numerals all came out 2 22 We had a half-hour broadcasting in the morning from 10 to 10.30. We had a half-hour broadcasting in the afternoon from 2 to 2.30. And then we... Uh, we're also on the air between 6 and 7 o'clock. Now, in just a moment, we bring you the commentary of Fulton Lewis, Jr., the news from Washington, D.C. Washington is generally agreed tonight, ladies and gentlemen, that whatever may be the shortcomings of Madame Chiang Kai-shek, if any, dramatics and quick decisions are not among them because the vague disclosure last Friday that the lady had been invited to come to the United States has metamorphosed over the weekend as East Coast families were digesting dinner and settling in for dessert, Fulton Lewis Jr. took to the air at 7 p.m. over the Mutual Broadcasting System. Mutual's famous newsman was born on April 30, 1903 in Washington, D.C. Although he was an indifferent student, he found his niche as a reporter for the Washington Herald in the 1920s. Within three years, he was the city editor. In 1933, he joined Hearst's Universal News Service. After filling in one night on the radio, Washington station WOL offered him a full-time commentary position. By then, WOL was a prominent affiliate for the mutual broadcasting system. Lewis's commentaries were soon being nationally broadcast. At his peak during World War II, he was heard on more than 500 stations and boasted a weekly audience of 16 million listeners. She would tell her story before them because that is the committee that has charge of any further aid to China. However, the acting chairman of that committee, Senator H. Alexander Smith of New Jersey, the regular chairman, Senator Stiles Bridges of New Hampshire, is at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, receiving, uh, 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 recovering from a surgical operation. Senator Smith informed me this afternoon that he does not plan to invite Madam Chang to testify before his group, although there were reports here this afternoon that she would be invited to appear next Monday. Senator Smith said that... In late 1948, the Republic of China was once again fighting a civil war with the Communist Party. The CPC had captured the northern cities of Shenyang and Changchun, seizing control of the northeast region of China. In September, 
they grab Jinan and Shangdong. Madame Chiang Kai-shek, born Song Mei Ling, was the first lady of the Republic of China and a supporter of FDR and Harry Truman. She was returning to Washington, D.C. to ask for aid to ward off the advancing communist troops in the midst of the Pingjin campaign. Nearly one million Chinese would die from this campaign alone. It would last until January 31, 1949. Madame Chiang Kai-shek's pleas would be for naught. By October of 1949, the Republic of China would be defeated and new leader Mao Zedong proclaimed the founding of the People's Republic of China. She and her husband fled to Taiwan, although her political career was far from over. She became a patron of the International Red Cross Committee, honorable chair of the British United Aid to China Fund, and the first honorary member of the Bill of Rights Commemorative Society. She eventually settled in New York City, passing away on October 23, 2003, at the grand age of 105. Politically, it does not necessarily follow that he is unfriendly to them socially. That may well be true, but uh, this could hardly be called a social visit. On the contrary, Madame Chang very plainly is coming to Washington to plead for more help and more support for the Chinese nationalist government, of which her husband is the head. And there is at least a reasonable possibility that she's going to get that help, too, because this is a very determined and accomplished citizen, this particular lady. Make no mistake about that. If it's to be had, it'll be in her handbag when she boards the plane to go back to Nanking. In fact, if it ever does become necessary for us to send another emissary for a conference with Mr. Joseph Stalin, as had, has been uh, suggested on several occasions lately, we could do no better than to hire her for just a few days to handle the job. Our fortunes in those conferences in the past have been pretty grim, if you remember, at Yalta and Tehran and Potsdam. But here is a prospect. In the entire 13 years that the late Franklin D. Roosevelt was in the White House, this is the only individual I ever saw who had Mr. Roosevelt stopped cold in one of his own press conferences. He was a guest at the White House at the time. Mr. Roosevelt let his guard down to the extent of inviting her to attend one of his press conferences and then further let it down to the extent of inviting her to answer some questions from the reporters. From then on, it was her press conference, and he was just along for the ride... And I might add that that's exactly what Madame Chiang Kai-shek gave him while Mrs. Roosevelt stood by glaring daggers at her. This time, of course, it's impossible for her to be a White House house guest because the White House is undergoing a remodeling and restoration on a major scale, and it's impossible for her to be put up at the Blair House across the street, which is where most notable visitors are ensconced, because the President and Mrs. Truman have moved in and taken over there until the White House is again ready for occupancy. Just more of the white of the Washington housing shortage, but maybe it does explain why the black-haired, black-gowned lady from Nanking is going to stay with the marshals at their estate in Leesburg, Virginia. Now I'll have more news for you in just half a minute. No need to drive an unsafe car. William O. McKay's steering safety special includes balancing a front wheel. Although President Truman wanted to receive the madam at the White House, he was unable due to a massive renovation project. When the Trumans moved in in 1945, they found the presidential residence to be near collapse. By then, the building was 145 years old. The Truman Reconstruction Project would take his entire second term. Construction work would begin in December of 1949. In addition to replacing the interior, the mansion was to be modernized and expanded. The total number of rooms was nearly doubled. 
Getting around to domestic politics, leaders of the young progressive group among the Republicans in the United States Senate conceded privately today that if Senator Robert A. Taft of Ohio wants the Republican leadership of the Senate, the floor leadership job, that's the official job of Republican Senate leader, he will be able to get it. They admit that they simply do not have enough votes to stop him, and rather than make the attempt and fail and cause enmities within the ranks of the party, they're going to let discretion be the better part of valor and agree to his getting the job. Simultaneously, the nation saw the rise of a progressive wing of young, hungry Republican congressmen. The party was tired of losing elections, and the feeling amongst the young members was that much of the old guard had long been national failures. It was time for them to step back or step off. There is no indication whatsoever from him that he expects any change in the rules or that he entertains any idea of trying to hold on to that job. The young progressives among the Republicans, those who were openly critical of the uh, past leadership of the party, particularly after the November election fiasco, want one of their own group in that job, and if the truth were known, so do a great many other individuals and the laity of the Republican Party organization generally. They're tired of losing, and the simple but very effective argument which they advance is that if those who've handled the party in the past were not able to win this last time, they'd better turn in their uniforms and get off the squad because they never will win. Their first choice for the policy committee chairmanship are Senator Raymond Baldwin of Connecticut and Senator Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts, although Senator William Nolan of California also is being mentioned. Unlikely, however, because of the fact that he has only been in the Senate less than two terms. He was appointed to fill the vacancy left by the late Senator Hiram Johnson. The other two are old-timers, either in the Senate or in top-flight politics. It could be something like that will evolve out of the present situation. The older leaders of the party actually are pretty well flabbergasted and breathtaking at the moment. It's not at all impossible in the light of what has happened. They might just shake their heads and say with a shrug, well, it's just too much for us to explain. Let's let them take it over and have a try at it. Maybe they do know what it's all about after all. And they might easily accept either Baldwin or Lodge, particularly Baldwin, on such a basis. If, however, they decide otherwise, the outcome almost certainly is going to be a compromised candidate, someone like Senator Eugene Milliken of Colorado, or even more likely Senator Stiles Bridges of New Hampshire, possibly Senator Stoltenstall of Massachusetts. One thing, however, you may be absolutely sure, the old party leaders are not going to be able to retain complete control of the Republican Party in the Senate as they have done in the past. The progressive blood has just too much power in proportion to the total Senate Republican membership to permit it. Apropos of our various disclosures about unemployment compensation and the exploiting of it by people who just don't want to work and prefer to take a vacation at the expense of the system, I have here a statement from California's state senator, Fred H. Kraft, who is chairman of a special investigating committee of the California State Legislature, assigned to the job of investigating the unemployment compensation system in that state. What exasperated Reconstruction around Congress was the emerging economic downturn, which began immediately following the 1948 presidential election. Part of Truman's campaign was the promise of avoiding such a recession, supposedly to be brought on by incumbent Republicans. And here is his statement. First, he says, many of the young men, the vast percentage I talked to, gave utterance to a philosophy which astounded me. They expressed no personal ambitions. They have no desire to set up some economic goal and work for it. Time and again, I asked, don't you want to be somebody? No, was the answer. All I want to do is get by. They expect and want the government to take care of them. Apparently, they have no interest in or inclination toward any profession or vocation. Under the present setup, which requires them to earn $300 in a base period before becoming eligible for unemployment insurance, they told me that they found it necessary to get some kind of a job. Part of the problem was returning aimless soldiers who'd fought in World War II. 
Many of them were disenfranchised and suffering from what we'd now call PTSD. Older generations who'd lived through the hardships of the Great Depression felt them to be loafers, content with surviving on the nation's unemployment fund. The present system allows this loafing, he says, because of a number of conditions. First, the burden of proving eligibility or ineligibility is on the state, not on the claimant. In other words, the state has to prove that the claimant is not eligible before he can be disqualified. Second, a worker registers for, un for employment in only one category. If he can be classed in a category in which he knows offers few possibilities for employment, he is available for work and thus can receive his compensation. Conversely, this works a hardship on those with specialized training who are genuinely interested in seeking employment and would be glad to take any kind of a job to tide them over. Third, a man may register with a union, and as long as he is registered, he is considered to be seeking employment. Finally, these men are not required to re-register for work at intervals. They register just once with the Department of Employment in California. In the smaller towns of the San Joaquin Valley, I heard about the local Venos. Many of the citizens expressed surprise to me concerning this situation. For many of these men are skilled workers who, when they wish to build up their reserve in order to be eligible, easily find work, earn the requisite money, and again, quit or are fired. And for the period of unemployment, draw their checks and go on Vino drunks. But that doesn't tell the whole story. When factoring the massive amounts of strikes following World War II, coupled with the U.S. war debt, and pledges to help rebuild war-destroyed Europe while simultaneously fighting the battle against communism. It's no surprise that during the one-year recession, the U.S. GDP fell by 1.7%. By October of 1949, the unemployment rate reached 7.9%. Much like in 1947, for many Americans in 1948, it would be a lean holiday season. Department store sales fell 22 percent. That's the top of the news as it looks from here. Thank you, Mr. Lewis. William O. McKay's have declared push-button war on repair and tune-up costs. By merely pushing a button, McKay's technicians can test your car as it pulls up a steep grade, speeds along a fast highway, or stops and starts in heavy traffic. And yet, your car never leaves McKay's service center. That's because McKay's have installed the amazing new vehicle analyzer, the very same device used by car manufacturers in testing the performance of their cars under actual road conditions. The vehicle analyzer double-checks your car before and after servicing to give you the efficient, dependable service that has made McKay's a favorite service center for over 25 years. Drive your car to William O. McKay Company soon. Westlake at Roy in Seattle. This transcribed commentary by Fulton Lewis, Jr. has been brought to you by the William O. McKay Company, operators of the Northwest's leading auto and truck maintenance plant. Listen Monday through Friday at this same time for Fulton Lewis, Jr. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Our first half hour came as a summer replacement for Jack Benny, also for Young and Rubicum, General Foods. And I remember Jack flew me out. I was vacationing with a high school buddy of mine and flew me out here to Hollywood on very short notice to guest on his last program of the winter season and give me a pitch and welcome to his time slot for the summer mm -hmm. replacement. And I remember sitting at the table down here at Sunset and Vine 
for the first rehearsal of the Jack Benny show and what a high moment that was in my life, having been a fan and till his dying day and forever. And I'm happy to say friend of Jack's and watching him handle that show and construct with his genius of elegance and wit turning it over to me. I remember this one line, but be sure you give it back come fall. <laughs> came fall, of course, Mr. Betty got his time back, and we were very fortunate to start on our own time, and that went on for 15 years. The Aldrich family, based on characters originated by Clifford Goldsmith, and starring Ezra Stone as Henry, with Jackie Kelk as Homer. Henry! Henry Aldrich! Coming, Mother! <laughs> 8 p.m. Eastern Time on NBC, The Aldrich Family took to the air starring Ezra Stone. And now for The Aldrich Family. To an impulsive, wide-awake teenage boy, each new day is like a surprise package. You open it and all sorts of excitements pop out, as Henry Aldrich knows only too well. The scene opens in a classroom of Central High School. It is the morning of the day before Thanksgiving. Madam Chairman! Order! Madam Chairman! committee members. I say the reason we've only sold 20 tickets for our Thanksgiving dance tonight is because we have an appeal to the school spirit of our class. We've got to make them realize Central High is counting on them to put their shoulder to the wheel and get out there and dance. And if that doesn't work, I say let's get Miss Eggleston to give everyone who doesn't buy a ticket a detention. What? Yeah, sure. Madam Chairman! Madam Chairman, I object. That's against the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights? The Bill of Rights? Homer, show me one place in the Bill of Rights where it mentions a detention. It's there, Charlie. Read between the lines. Read between the lines. Oh, read between the lines yourself. I say give them a detention. No! Yeah, yeah. Chair. What chair? Me. Madam Chairman. Henry, I told you to sit down. But I've got a suggestion. Henry, every time you make a suggestion, it leads to trouble. Sit down. I make a motion we hear Henry. Nobody seconds it. I'll second it. You can't. Why not? It's my motion. Oh. Okay, but hurry it up, Henry. Thank you, Madam Chairman. <clears throat> Fellow members, I've been listening with a great deal of interest, pro and con... And I'm forced to ask myself, are we whistling up the wrong tree? Henry, stop dragging in trees and get to the point. What I mean is every year we go to these Thanksgiving dances and what happens? That's a good question. I'm glad it was brought up. I'll tell you. I'd be glad to. Why do we? To dance. What else did you expect? I'm glad you asked. I say let's climax our dance tonight with a good old-fashioned turkey run, and we'll sell every ticket we've got. A turkey run! Just when everybody's getting good and bored dancing with each other, we turn this 25-pound milk-fed country-raised turkey loose, and the one who catches him keeps him. The show was developed by Clifford Goldsmith from his Broadway play, What a Life. Goldsmith drew ideas from his own teenage sons who frequently chided him about plagiarism after the broadcast. In the play, all the action takes place in the office of the high school principal. 
Ezra Stone played Henry on stage. Rudy Valley saw it and asked Goldsmith to work up some radio skits for the Valley program. In 1938, the company was signed for a 39-week run on the Kate Smith Hour. Bob Welch, the director on The Smith Show, devised the famed coming mother signature, which became an indelible part of radio when the Aldrich family opened in July of 1939 as a summer replacement for Jack Benny. I wish we could have been as successful and sold as much Jello as Jack, but we didn't have his vast audience, nor did we have the longevity that Jack had. Mother, but someone else has to go into the garage for the clothespins. Mary, really. I hate to tell you where he tried to bite me. He tried to bite you? My goodness. Goodbye, Alice. I'm leaving for the office. Uh, Sam, I'd like to speak to you first. Yes, nothing wrong. Sam Aldrich, for the last time, he has to go. Who? You know very well who. That turkey your brother John sent us. Alice, he's a wonderful turkey. He's milk-fed. Father, he couldn't possibly get that disposition from milk. Sam, you'll just have to get rid of him. Alice, are you sure we can't use him for our Thanksgiving dinner tomorrow? Now, dear, you know very well I have a clean, freshly dressed turkey in the refrigerator. Why not send him back to Uncle John? Now, Mary, that would hurt his feelings. Uncle John? Father, you can say anything to him. My goodness, the way we joke about his whole family. Mary, that's only his family. He's very sensitive about his turkeys. (laughs) Sam, why not just give it to someone? That turkey? Mother, who take it? Well, I'm sure there are many families... By 1941, the show had streaked to a Crosley rating of 33.4 and was nestled high in the top ten with Jack Benny, Bob Hope, and Fibber McGee and Molly. However, the show began a slow descent after. By Thanksgiving of 1948, it was airing on Thursday evenings with a rating of 14.7. CBS's The FBI and Peace and War won the time slot with a rating of 19.2. In fact... CBS swept the entire primetime ratings block on Thursday evenings that season. It's just that, that, well, I don't have a good sharp axe. How about a hammer? Mary. Doesn't Will Brown have an axe? Yes. Yes, he does. I'll take the turkey right over to Will. I'll answer the phone. Mary, is the bird still tied in the garage? Yes, Father, but when you go in there, be careful you don't bend over. He's very unreliable. Hello? Hi, Mother. Mother, if you could think of the best news I could give you, what would you say it was? Let me see. The best news of all. You got an A in Latin. Latin? Dear, I'm so proud of you. Mother, you're confusing the issue. What's Latin got to do with good news? Very well, I give up. I sold Uncle John's turkey. What? For five dollars. Agnes was tough, but when I suggested she could change to dungarees for the excitement, she came around. Around to what? To a turkey run, to a turkey run, with Uncle John's turkey. But, Henry, we don't have Uncle John's turkey anymore. What? You mean he escaped? No, dear, your father's giving it away. Well, gee whiz, stop him, Mother, stop him. Now, Henry, Mrs. Dixon and her family deserve a nice Thanksgiving just as much as any member of your class does. But, Mother, they've already paid me the five dollars. What can I tell them? Just explain that the turkey is for a very worthy cause and that there's no reason why they can't use something else. What, for instance? Well, wieners. Mother, who ever heard of a wiener run? But, dear... Gotta get busy and dig up a turkey right away. Goodbye. Henry. Well, my goodness. Mother! Mother, you should have seen it. You should have seen it. Seen what? The turkey. He insisted on getting into the front seat with Father. Oh, my goodness. And you should have seen them driving down the street with the turkey trying to fly through the windshield. Oh, dear. 
maybe I ought to have let that turkey go to Henry's dance after all. Honeymoon, we went to Cleveland, and uh, we were booked there at Keith's Cleveland, and we had three days off in Cleveland, and we arrived in the hotel at five o'clock in the morning, and we got married at seven. But we didn't get a room because we sat in the lobby for two hours. Because if you get a room before seven, you had to pay for an extra day. <laughs> so we sat there for two hours and got married at seven o'clock and checked in. And our honeymoon was at the hotel for three days. And then we opened Cleveland. And we were married for 38 years. What made it so good? We didn't work at it. Uh, the uh, Gracie didn't marry me because I was a great lover. She married me for laughs. I got more laughs in bed with Gracie than I did when I played Las Vegas. <laughs> Another cup of Maxwell House coffee, George? Sure. Pour me a cup, Gracie. You know, Maxwell House is always good to the last... <laughs> drop. That drop's good, too. Yes, it's Maxwell House coffee time, starring George Burns and Gracie Allen. At 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time, live from Los Angeles, Burns and Allen signed on for Maxwell House. George's best man... He asks Gracie to watch over his friend's wedding ring. Of course, antics ensue when a turkey swallows it. B. Benaderet, Hans Conried, Pat McGee, and Doris Singleton, Harry Lubin, the Maxwell House Orchestra, and Bill Goodwin. For America's Thursday night comedy enjoyment, it's George and Gracie. And for America's everyday coffee-drinking enjoyment, it's Maxwell House. The coffee that's bought and enjoyed by more people than any other brand at any price. Yes, Maxwell House, always good to the last drop. Well, it's Thanksgiving morning as we look in at the Burns home, but that's not the subject of discussion between George and Gracie. It seems that George is going to be best man at a friend's wedding, and he's telling Gracie all about it. It's Bob Webster who's getting married, Gracie. Uh, Bob Webster? Yeah, you remember the Webster boys. We had them here for dinner one night. Yeah. Oh, yes. Bob is the one who spilled the gravy on the table, cross brother. <laughs> yeah, that's him. Well, um, Bob is finally going to settle down and marry himself a wife. Well, wouldn't it be better if he married a single girl? <laughs> She is. Uh, she is single. Oh, good. Do I know her? I don't think so. She's marrying Carol. Oh, I thought she was marrying Bob Webster. <laughs> Who's Bob marrying? Marrying Carol. He's marrying the same person? No, no, no. Look. Oh, uh, then who's he marrying? Marrying Carol. Well, George, for a best man, you certainly are mixed up. Uh, Gracie, this Marion is spelled M-A-R-I-A-N. Now, do you understand? Well, of course I understand. I'm no dumbbell. Good. <laughs> the bride is Marion Carroll. All right. Now, who's the groom, Marion? <laughs> oh, nuts. Oh, nuts. It's an Irish girl, huh? <laughs> yes, uh, Molly O'Nuts. <laughs> Well, anyway, this is the first time I've, uh, I've ever been a uh, best man. Uh, how do you think I should dress? Oh, the usual way. First, put on your underwear. Then... <laughs> I, I don't mean that. I mean, how should I dress at the wedding? Oh, I wouldn't. I dress here. <laughs> well, forget the whole thing. 
I'll go to the wedding in a, in a, in a tuxedo. Well, it's only a couple of blocks. Why don't you walk? <laughs> yeah. Well, a tuxedo is that funny black suit I wore when we got married. Oh, have you still got that suit? Well, sure. You must owe a lot of rent on it by now. <laughs> About $30,000. Yeah. Well, now I'm going out to borrow some studs. But first, I better put this wedding ring where, where it'll be safe. Oh, what a beautiful ring. It's set with diamonds and everything. Yeah, Bob was so nervous, he asked me to keep it. Oh, let me wear it until the wedding tomorrow. Oh, no, no, no. You might lose it. Besides, uh, you've got a wedding ring. Oh, but this one is so beautiful. Gracie, a wedding ring is just a symbol. It doesn't matter if it's solid brass. Well, I know I love my ring. <laughs> but this one is so exquisite. I won't lose it. I've never lost mine. Honey, this ring cost $1,000. Yours cost $5. No, George, no. My ring cost $10. No, I paid $5 for it. Are you sure? Well, certainly. Well, then you forgot to give me my change. <laughs> I'll owe it to you. And Bob's ring goes right in this drawer. And I want it to stay there. Now I've got to find some tuxedo studs and get the suit pressed. Oh. There's Blanche Morton at the back door. Come in, Blanche. Hello, folks. Happy Thanksgiving. Well, thank you, Blanche. Say, Gracie, yes? I'm having a bunch in for dinner. I wonder if I could borrow that wonderful little pot of yours that cooks things so fast. Well, certainly. Go along with it, George. <laughs> Hans Conry was an off-featured guest on the show. Well, you consider it now. There were many of us engaged in it. It was. It is hard to explain to persons who have never... Uh, utilized it as an evening's entertainment as we in our time did. But I suppose it was as avidly followed and it caused as much social conversation and certainly did, I suspect, rather less harm than the popular one that might as well be nameless now, in which I also make a living. It was a, a very rich theatrical form that has not been matched, I think, in many aspects by anything that has come later. Just fine, Blanche. I've made pumpkin pie, chestnut dressing, and, and see, I, I've got the oven turned to 350 degrees. That's perfect for browning a turkey. Hmm? That reminds me, I better look at it. Uh oh, I'm in trouble. You burnt the turkey? No, I forgot to get one. <laughs> And I'll bet George is so hungry he could eat the table leaves. Well, quick, put him in the oven. <laughs> I was only kidding, Gracie. You gotta have a turkey. But Blanche, the markets are all closed. How will I get one? Drive out to the country and buy one from a farmer. Hey, that's a good idea. Sure. What do you want? A tom turkey? Tom turkey, Sam turkey. Who cares what? It's <laughs> I'm going to feed them to George, not introduce them. Uh, you help yourself to the cooker. I'll head for the country. All right. Oh, I wonder if I dare... Yes, I'll wear it. Blanche, isn't this a beautiful wedding ring? Oh, it's magnificent. Oh, you lucky girl. Now, it's not mine. It belongs to a girl Bob Webster's going to marry. Oh, nuts. Yeah, that's right. Molly. <laughs> George told me not to wear it, but I'm going to anyhow. Gracie, are you the kind of wife who disobeys her husband? Well, sure, I'm normal. <laughs> See you later, Blanche. Blanche. <laughs> 
There they are, ma'am. I've got about 20 turkeys left. I'm selling them for 60 cents a pound. Well, I guess I'll have to pay it. My husband insists on turkey, but it does seem high. It costs money to feed an old gobbler. Yes, especially when he insists on turkey. <laughs> Want me to pick one out for you? Oh, no, no. You might try to fool me. I'll pick them out myself. I'm an expert. I know all about turkeys from their manes to their withers. <laughs> yeah, I can tell you're an expert, all right. See one you want? Mm-hmm. Oh, I see one I don't want. That turkey nearest the fence. It's got flat feet. <laughs> yep. Besides, it's a duck. <laughs> well, I want a turkey. Oh, there's a cute little baby one. He'll be a fine bird when he grows up. He's milk-fed. Oh, now there you go, trying to fool me. That little turkey couldn't be milk-fed. He's too short to reach a cow's faucet. <laughs> I'm sorry I tried to fool you. Well... I better pick out a turkey. Eeny, meeny, miny. Oh, oh, my goodness. What's the matter? The wedding ring, it's gone. It must have slipped off my finger here in the turkey pen. I don't see nothing of it. Oh, if that ring's gone, my husband will murder me. It's a thousand-dollar wedding ring. I'll bet I know what's happened. One of them turkeys took it. Well, quick, which one of them is planning to get married? <laughs> Lady, I mean one of them turkeys swallowed it. Oh, that's terrible. You see, the, the ring isn't mine. My husband had it for another woman. My, you Hollywood folks. <laughs> Even Burns and Allen weren't immune to CBS's rising Thursday ratings. While they pulled a 15.7 that month and were NBC's most listened to show of the evening, opposite on CBS... Mr. Keene pulled a rating of 18.4. After four seasons on NBC, in the fall of 1949, the famed comedy couple would return to CBS, leaving Maxwell House behind. Lady, the only way to find that ring is for you to buy these turkeys and let me kill them. No, sir. I can't let 19 innocent turkeys die just because one of them is a thief. I'll take them home with me and find the guilty one somehow. Well... Just as you say, ma'am. But how will I get all these turkeys to town? I'll truck them in. Well, that's a long way to dance. <laughs> well, then you, you look healthy. Here's my address. Put them in the back. How did they treat you? How did your fellow actors treat you? Well, I was very lucky because most everyone I worked with was really awfully nice to me, and all the actors liked children mm -hmm. very much. And so I must say that I was quite lucky. You went to school mm -hmm. around your film shooting schedule, Well, right? no, no. The film shoots around your schooling. It's oh, the opposite uh. because the Board of Education was very, very strict. The studio had to uh, bow to the teachers, uh -huh. so to speak. If you didn't have A's or B's, the Board of Education would take you out of pictures. Was this so-called MGM Little Red Schoolhouse a fictional thing, or was there really a schoolhouse on there the lot? There was a schoolhouse on the lot. It wasn't uh -huh. red, but there was a schoolhouse on the lot, yes. You said that you had done some radio work. Who will ever forget your confrontations or love affairs, if you will, with Charlie McCarthy? Oh, yes, the... I did a lot of the Charlie McCarthy shows, and I enjoyed that very much. 
Edgar Bergen had you on a number of times, mm -hmm. and, and also you did some things with Bing Crosby, and yes. you were on many of the dramatic programs, Lux, too. Mm -hmm. Radio Theater, and I did a lot of those. In just a moment, Autolite presents Suspense, starring Margaret O'Brien. Over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house we go. The horse knows the way to carry the sleigh. Why, Hap, I... Hap, that's not the way to sing hurrah for Thanksgiving Day. What are you telling me, Harlow Wilcox? Why, I'm No, no, Hap, this is the way it goes today. Over the river and through the woods and never mind the snow. Grandpa is happy with his jalopy, his batteries never low. Over the river and through the woods, blow high, ye winds blow low. The car's as snappy as Grandma and Pappy, with an Autolite stay full, you know. But Harlow, Why, that's you not... see, Hap, Autolite stay full batteries have changed a lot of things today. Harlow isn't anything sacred anymore. It's Thanksgiving Day. Let's listen to Margaret O'Brien on Suspense. Autolite and its 60,000 dealers and service stations bring you radio's outstanding theater of thrills. Starring tonight, Miss Margaret O'Brien in Anton Leder's production of The Screaming Woman. A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. I'm Margaret Leary, and I've got to tell you how it happened. It was Thanksgiving Day, and it was nice and sunshiny. Almost like summer, except cooler. Mama was cooking the turkey, and I was watching. And Mama said to me, Good heavens, I forgot. Your Aunt Cynthia's made some cranberry relish for us. Run over and get it, Margaret, so her feelings aren't hurt. And hurry, this turkey's down to a turn. <laughs> So I ran to Aunt Cynthia's, and on the way back I took a shortcut through Mr. Kelly's lot. It's a big lot, more like the side of a hill that slides down to Monument Creek. It's a swell place to play Indians and cowboys, or explorers are hunting for treasures, because trucks dump all kinds of stuff there. Loads of dirt and junk, and even big things like old cars and big pipes and chunks of concrete. Well, this day, coming back from Aunt Cynthia's, I saw that a lot of new junk and dirt had been dumped there since Saturday. They'd even covered up our swell big concrete pipe that us kids called our fort. Covered it clear up. I was looking around to see where it used to be when, all of a sudden, I stopped and listened. The sound was coming up out of the ground. A woman was buried under the junk and dirt and glass, and she was screaming all wild and horrible for somebody to dig her out. I started to run. I fell down and got up and ran some more. It was an awful, awful long way to our house that day. Mama! Mama! Margaret? Mama, Mama! Oh, Margaret, haven't I told you not to slam the door? Is that the relish? Listen, Mama, there's a screaming woman in the lot. Wash your hands, Margaret. She was screaming and screaming and screaming. Mama, listen to me. We've got to dig her out. She's buried under tons and tons of dirt. I'm sure she can wait till after dinner. Oh, next year, I swear I'm going to buy a bigger platter. Mama, don't you believe me? You've got to believe me. Margaret, I've got a million things to do. Good gosh, look at you. How'd you get your knees so dirty? Well, running back from the lot, I... Never mind. Scoot and tell your dad we're about to eat. He's in the front room reading his paper. Yes, Mama. Daddy! Oh, Daddy, I've got to tell you something. 
Mary, baby? Daddy, there's a screaming woman in the lot. Well, I never knew a woman who didn't. Mmm, smell that turkey. We've got to get picks and shovels and dig her up, like we're an Egyptian mummy. Oh, Daddy! Well, I don't feel much like an archaeologist today, Margaret. I can't think of anything but food. Let's have an expedition next Sunday and dig her up. But we can't wait that long. Oh, Daddy, she'll die if we don't do it now. I'll give you some money. Oh, so it's a business proposition. Well, how much do you pay by the hour? I've got five whole dollars. It took me a year to save. <laughs> Come here, Puss. You know I'm touched. Oh, but Daddy, You want I... me to play with you, and you're willing to pay me for my oh, but... time. My dear, you're shaking. Calm down. Oh, Daddy, please. After our Thanksgiving dinner, I'll come out and listen to your screaming oh, but... woman. How's that? Oh, no, now, Daddy. Maybe she'll die if you don't come out now. Oh, you've got to come now. Margaret. If you believe me, you wouldn't wait. You never believe me. Mama doesn't believe me. Margaret, Nobody Margaret, believes me. quiet down right this minute. Oh, or but... I not only won't go with you, but you'll go to your room and stay in without oh. your Thanksgiving dinner. How is that clear? Yes, sir. It's clear. <laughs> After Suspense's hour-long format failed in the spring of 1948, some critics wondered if it was the end for radio's outstanding theater of thrills. However, behind the scenes, William Paley quietly negotiated with Autolite to take over sponsorship. One of Paley's objectives was to bundle the sponsorship of the radio series with an upcoming Suspense television program. Paley even convinced Autolite to change advertising agencies. A half-hour version of Suspense re-debuted on Thursday, July 8th, 1948 at 9 p.m. Eastern Time from Hollywood. Anton M. Leader became the producer. By the fall, it topped Al Jolson's Kraft Music Hall in the ratings and became Thursday's highest-rated show by season's end. The Thanksgiving 1948 episode was called The Screaming Woman and guest starred Margaret O'Brien, who was then just 11 years old. Oh, please, please, Daddy. Now, if you pester me anymore, if you mention her again, this screaming what's-us, I won't go out with you to hear a recital at all. Understood? Yes, sir. It's understood. I wanted to yell. Oh, please, rush, get up, run around, come on, hurry. But I had to sit still, while out there in the lot with the sun shining down, all alone with nobody to hear or to help her, was the screaming woman. I could hear in my mind, screaming. Mom and Daddy couldn't hear. They just kept on eating and talking. Well... Now that I can be thankful for a full stomach, I guess we should consider what other things we have to be thankful for, hmm? Well, we're all healthy. Prices are sky high, but we're not in debt. Mm. Yet. Those are mundane things, my dear. I'm thankful for my big daughter. Right, Puss? Yes, Dad. And for my loving wife, who is still the most romantic woman I know. Oh, silly. I'm thankful I didn't marry somebody else. You nearly married Dora Lampell. Even gave her a ring. No, I never meant anything. No one... No. You're the only one who's been the serious competitor since we were all kids. Oh. There's only one. One Ooh. other. Helen Nesbitt. Oh. <laughs> yeah, Helen was my first love. When she was about as old as Margaret, I gave her a present one Christmas, and she gave me one, and I still have it. Oh, that paperweight on your desk. Mm-hmm. Funny how we hang on to things that were important when we were kids. Daddy. Just a little longer, boss. Warm up my coffee, will you, dear? You know what I'm thankful for, dear? Seriously. That we stayed here in the same town where we grew up. Here you are, dear. Thank you. The same friends. Even the same street. Mm, it's been a peaceful life. 
Not very exciting, but... Daddy! Margaret finds it pretty exciting. <laughs> yes. You better take her out to the lot before she collapses. All right, now, where is your screaming woman? Lead me to her. Over here, where our fort used to be. Fort? The big concrete pipe. It's all covered up now. Mm, Kelly's really getting this lot filled in. All right, where's the lady? Uh, right about here, Daddy. Listen. Don't hear a thing, except the wind. Better button up your sweater, puss. Shh, listen. Well, that's the trolley over on Aspen Street. Hey, there, screaming woman. Hey! Hmm. Looks like the Dolans are starting out for a drive. Well, I guess your screaming woman's let you down, Puss. But she was here, Daddy. Right under here where they dumped all this dirt. I heard her screaming and screaming like she was underneath the fort. Somebody's dumped tons and tons right on top of our fort. Yeah, too bad they buried your fort, Margaret. I saw two of Kelly's big trucks back in here last evening. There was a dump truck in here this morning, too. It isn't because they covered the fort. Uh, it must be your screaming woman doesn't like grown-ups. Only delivers her solo for kids, I guess. Maybe she can't scream anymore. Well... I'm going back and take a nap. Let my dinner settle. Well, aren't you going to help me dig? Now, listen, my dear. Don't you think this is a sort of a silly game? But it's not a game. Now, don't stay too long, dear. Mama will probably like some help with those dishes. Daddy! Daddy! Oh, I know I heard her scream. I know it. Oh, darn, darn, darn! You're there. You're still there. Hey, screaming woman! Why did you scream before? Why didn't you scream so Daddy could hear you? Don't just scream for me. I can't help you all by myself. Well, the funny part of radio is you often performed many colorful roles and many colorful scripts, but in a plain, drab studio. So there's nothing visual to remember. It's all mental. It's all in your memory. Whereas if you had worked in a motion picture, you might have been out on a set out in the, you know, out in the desert or somewhere. Mm -hmm. And you would remember it because of that. But year after year as you worked in radio, it was so wonderful. All you did was wear a decent suit and carry a pencil with you. And you came in and marked your script and went to work, and then you went home. And people didn't know you, which was rather pleasant. Uh, you could go anywhere, and you weren't recognized. And if you're shy at all, and I think maybe I am a little bit, it's kind of nice. The way that gives that natural look is T-O-N-I, Tony. Tony. Tony Home Permanent, the wave that gives that natural look, brings you Crime Photographer. When suspense signed off, Crime Photographer signed on live from New York. It aired opposite the Sealed Test Village store on NBC and the newly migrated Mysterious Traveler on Mutual. It starred Stotts Cotsworth, Jan Minor, and John Gibson. Johnny was uh, just naturally funny, you know. He thought funny. Then John Dietz, who was our... Uh, director, he was tired of the same stick. He was a little bit pixelated too, you know. Thanksgiving Day, early afternoon. 
Among the crowd that strolls idly by the Blue Note Cafe is a slight worried-looking man who, unlike the other strollers, doesn't appear to be in a holiday mood. Uh, Biff! Biff Connors! Huh? Hey, remember me, fella? Casey, Morning Express. Sure, I remember you. Hey, hey, couldn't be better. Biff, I haven't seen you since... Gosh, it must be three years. So. Yeah, closer to four. I guess it is. Miss Williams, let me introduce Mr. Connors. Hello, Mr. Connors. Nice to meet you, Miss Williams. I've heard some nice things about you, Biff. They tell me you're married now, raising a family, got your own business, doing fine. Yeah, well, uh, i got to be running along. It's nice huh? seeing you, Casey. Been introduced to you, Miss Williams. So long. Well, so long, Biff. That was short and sweet. Your friend could hardly contain his joy at meeting you. Yeah. You look worried, Casey. I don't think his mind is really on you. Who is he? Well, he... Used to be one of the cleverest safe crackers in the country. Safe cracker? Hmm. He knew more about safes than the people that make them. Well, he didn't keep him out of jail, though. He served three stretches. You don't usually introduce me to your criminal associates. Uh, Biff wasn't the usual kind of criminal, Annie. Since his last term in the big house, he's going absolutely straight, too. I know that. Yeah, I hope nothing's gone wrong with the guy. Oh, probably not. Ah, here's the blue note. Mm, let me push open the door for you. Yep. Well, look who's here. Hi, pal. Good afternoon, Ethelbert. Happy Thanksgiving to both of you. And to you. In big red letters. Had your turkey and trimmings yet? No, uh, we plan to go to a movie and then have dinner about 7 o'clock. You having it here? What? Thanksgiving dinner in this joint? Oh, not a chance. What's the matter with this joint? The chef's putting out a $1.75 special today. Casey's taking me to the Ritz for dinner. And then we're going to a play. Yep. Movies in the afternoon, the Ritz for dinner, and then an evening show, huh? Mm-hmm. You are having a holiday. Mm-hmm. We're not going to waste any of it hanging around here as much as we love you, Ethelbert. Oh. Casey, mm-hmm. it just came to my mind. As of November 1st, you owe us on your October bill. Oh, well, that's all right, Ethelbert. Just carry it over to December. I'm going to need all the dough I've got on me today, I think. Yeah, and you'll need all you got on you in December. I don't like the Dunna pal, Casey, but I know Casey. you... Huh? Oh, hello, Biff! Mr. Excuse Connors. me for butting in like this, Miss Williams, but Casey, after I left you outside, I, uh, I got to think... Well, we're glad I... to see you again, fella. How about having No, you... no, no, thanks. I hope you'll excuse me, Miss Williams. Casey, if I ain't asking too much, well, you step outside with me while... I, I can talk to you along. Well, I, uh, I'd appreciate it, Casey, a lot. Sure, go ahead, Casey. I'll uh, wait for you here. Oh. Well? Okay, any thanks. Okay, Biff. Thanks a million. You look awful worried, fella. What's this all about? Whoever was out of his way when it's time for him to speak, he'd get to that side of the mic because mm-hmm. they were directional mics, I guess you call them. Well, both sides work. But he'd have to move over because we, well, we worked in front of that microphone with arms flinging. And yeah. many times your arm would fling and the script would go flying <laughs> all over the studio and you'd have to run to the other side to read off the, the other person's script. After Anchor Hawking canceled sponsorship of Casey in the spring of 1948, Tony Home Permanent picked up the show. Tony Wave is taking, you can listen to the radio, read, do anything you like. This weekend, get the Tony kit, complete with plastic curlers for just $2. The ratings were good, but Anchor Hawking was dissatisfied with the show's inability to move product. Under Tony, Casey lightened up the scripts. This episode's rating for CBS was 17.2. Turn into the side street, Casey. It ain't too crowded. We can talk. Okay, Bert. 
I, uh, I oughtn't wish this on you, Casey. You ain't a guy who owes me anything. But after I run into you by accident a while ago, I got to thinking that maybe it was one of them, them signs. You see, I'd been praying. Yeah. Well, you was always a regular in my book, and I got to thinking that maybe you was the one guy in the world I could turn to for help. Yeah, well, uh, what kind of help do you need? I'm not so heavy with dough. I have plans for the day, but if you've got no, to have... No, I don't want any money. Oh. Well, you're not in trouble, then. Uh, wait a minute. You in wrong with the cops again? Not yet. Not yet? Casey, I've been 100% straight since I came out of stir last time. I asked you to believe that. I believe you, Ben. I, the wife, and I built up a nice little business. We got a, we got a store uptown, tobacco, candy, toys, stationery. Things were going along just swell until two weeks ago. What happened then? A couple of guys come into my store with a proposition. They wanted me to crack a safe. Yeah. They offered me 5,000 bucks to do the job. Nice money. I told them where to go with it. And a couple of days later, they come back. They raised their offer to 10 grand. I threw them out of the place. Gone. Well, that didn't give me nothing. He told me I'd play along with him or else. And then this morning, I found a loaded 45 caliber automatic under my candy counter. What, a gun? Yeah. I'm an ex-con, Casey, a three-time loser. You know what it'd mean for me if the cops found a gat in my possession? You'd get the book. Sure, I'd be put away for keeps. The gun was planted under that counter, Casey, sometime during the night. I wrapped it up. I made an excuse to the wife that I had to come downtown, and I went to the North Bridge, and I dropped it in the river. This gun was left where you'd be sure to find it. Yeah. It wasn't meant as a frame, just a, as a hint of what'll happen if I don't play ball. Are the two guys been around to follow up their hint? I don't know. I ain't been back to the store. Oh. Since I left the bridge, I've just been walking around trying to think. Wife don't know anything about them guys in the proposition. I ain't told her. And I can't tell her. She knows all about my record. You can figure how scared she'd be. And you haven't told the cops? Does a guy like me ever run to the cop? Well, it'd be smart if you ran to him this no, time. No, no, no. Why not? In the first place, they wouldn't believe me. An ex-con. They figure I was trying to put something over. I can't blame him, Casey. Well, I can tell him. You've got to promise me you won't. Well, Biff, Listen. Why... Suppose they did believe me. What happens? They set a trap for the guys who propositioned me. Them guys got friends who'll know that the squeal that the cops acted on had to come from me. My life wouldn't be worth a nickel. Yeah. Guess you got something. Promise there. me you won't say nothing to the cops, Casey. You got it. Well, what do you want me to do, Biff? I don't know. I just had to talk to somebody, that's all. For a guy I knew was right, and I ain't got such a good head, Casey. I figured maybe maybe you could figure my way out. Thanks for the compliment. Well, who are the guys that came to you with this proposition? I don't know. They didn't tell me their names. Well, I get around a little. What do they look like? One was uh, uh, tall and skinny. Had a long face and big yellow teeth. He kind of looks like a horse. Yeah? And the other's a little dark guy. Heavy set. Oh, wait a minute. The one you say looks like a horse, has he got a long scar on his neck? Yeah, like somebody done a shiv job on it. Can't be two mugs who answer to that description. Scar neck, horse face must be Jake Bannister. Head strong arm goon for Nick Reynolds. Nick Reynolds? Well, you must know who he is. Well, the name's familiar, but... Hey, I... you are out of touch with the rackets, kid. Nick Reynolds is the Mr. Big behind some of the dirtiest crooked work that goes on in this town. But he poses as a solid, respectable business guy, and the cops have never been able to nail him. Oh, wait a minute. Tell me more about the little uh, heavy set mug. Well, he, uh, he looks... He's got a cauliflower ear like a pug. And he stinks of perfume. Oh, he's Tony Chef. He's another of Reynolds' guys. Beginning to sound like hot stuff. I don't suppose they told you whose safe they want open, huh? No. They tell you anything about it? Only that it was a small house safe, a real tough one. That's what he needed an old hot shot like me. 
And they offered you dough to crack it. Ten grand. They didn't say anything about giving you a share of what's in it. That's right. I got a notion there isn't any dough in the box to share, Casey. Just something that somebody wants and is willing to pay high for. Uh, think you can find out from those guys where the box is, the location of the house, and who lives there? Well, they won't tell me unless I say I'll play ball with them. Oh. No, that's right, they won't. Look, Bip, go back to your store. They ought to be paying you a visit there today after planting that gun. Try to learn all you can. And then... Well, I've made other plans for this afternoon, but I'll... I'll stick around the blue note. I'll write down the number of a phone booth there so we can talk in private when you call. There. Here it is. Thanks, Casey. I got a dinner date for around seven that I can't break, fella, and then I'll be tied up for the rest of the evening, so if your guys don't show by seven, well, things are going to have to just ride a while, I guess. But in the meantime, I'll be running down a little tip I got on Nick Reynolds. A tip? Yeah, it's just a piece of gossip I didn't think much of until I heard your story. Now it may mean something. Hmm. Well, so long, Biff. Take it easy now and try not to worry, huh? I'll try, but you remember you promised me, Casey. You won't tell the cops. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I won't tell the cops. I don't think I'm second to anybody in volume of shows as an actor, mm -hmm. as a freelance actor. I do believe that I have done somewhere over 10,000 radio shows or appearances if you want to call them or whatever and I am still very nervous people assume that radio was comparatively easy as I do standing in a well-lighted studio with a nice script in front of you and all you have to do is read the lines right. But you can say some awfully strange things by mistake. <laughs> Your tongue can get twisted. As you know, there have been some classic. <laughs> I begin to get the picture. <laughs> Only eight known episodes from the entire Tony run, including Holiday from Thanksgiving 1948, have survived. And this was really the beginning of the end for radio as we knew it, John. Did you recognize that early? Oh, yes. Yes. For example, I remember going out to Chicago to record a show with Jimmy Durante and Don Amici when they were happened to be in Chicago and, you know, close enough so that I could go out by train and spend the night and then come back the next night. Mm -hmm. Coming through Pennsylvania at this time, I noticed these houses all with the television antennas everywhere you looked. And I suddenly realized I better get out of radio. Because here it is, even out here like Johnstown and places like that, the houses uh, way down the valley had tall antennas and the ones up high had short ones, but they were everywhere. And all of a sudden, uh, radio was slackening up and uh, whether you like television or not, you had to get into it if you wanted to keep on working. Mary, no! God, let's what? go! Mm, I 
simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast, Twelve Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. I suppose, Mr. Hilton, the first question anyone asks about Mr. Chips is whether there was a real Mr. Chips. As the author, I don't seem to be an authority on that point. I've had rather a large number of letters from people who assumed that their own personal Mr. Chips was mine, too. Actually, I never knew any one schoolmaster who was the complete 100% Mr. Chips. He is a combination of many schoolmasters, including my father. Is your father pleased or annoyed to find himself a fictional character? Oh, he denies it altogether, which is exactly what Chips would do in the same circumstances. (laughs) I wonder what he thinks of motion pictures. Well, I can only guess. My father saw a picture about 25 years ago, and the flickering hurt his eyes, so he didn't see another until I became involved in the business. Now he's extremely interested and very, very uncritical. He never says a picture is bad. Hmm. The perfect critic for a producer. Remember, a Hallmark card when you care enough to send the very best. Tonight, from Hollywood, the makers of Hallmark greeting cards bring you Miss Martha Scott in Rose Wilder Lane's Free Land on the Hallmark Playhouse. Each week, Hallmark will bring you Hollywood's greatest stars in outstanding stories chosen by one of the world's best-known authors, the distinguished novelist, Mr. James Hilton. At 10 p.m. on CBS... The Hallmark Playhouse took to the air from Hollywood with famed author James Hilton as host. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is James Hilton. After six seasons sponsoring Radio Reader's Digest, Hallmark Reading Cards decided to change directions and take name billing of the series. The Hallmark Playhouse debuted on Thursday, June 10, 1948 at 10 p.m. Hallmark announced plans to ransack the past and search out never-before-broadcast tales from the history of written literature. This was easier said than done. However, Thanksgiving's Free Land by Rose Wilder Lane was one such triumph. It starred screen actress Martha Scott. Rose Wilder Lane entitled Free Land. And for that matter, there is appropriateness also in Miss Lane's having written this fine story, since she was born in the Dakota Territory, and her mother was one of the original pioneers who had come out from the East in the old homesteading days. This virile background lends an inspired quality to the story we tell tonight. And we are additionally privileged to have in the starring role one of Hollywood's most charming and distinguished actresses, Miss Martha Scott. Now, Frank Goss, would you take over for a moment, please? For a Christmas greeting your friends will long remember, make your selections now from the complete Hallmark collection on display at the Friendly Store where you buy Hallmark cards. Whatever your taste, whatever your budget, you'll take special pride in sending Hallmark cards. 
And on the back of every one is the identifying hallmark that says, You cared enough to send the very best. Hallmark Playhouse, starring Martha Scott in Rose Wilder Lane's Free Land. Free Land. The phrase was on everyone's lips and it had an exciting, adventurous sound to it. One stood at evening looking west across the well-tilled, fruitful acres of Minnesota wondering about it. Wondering about Dakota and what treasures might be in store for those who went west to claim that free land. One stood and wondered if David... And then one turned and went quietly in and shut the door against the thought. To lose David would be to lose all hope for the future. I'm a little late getting here tonight, Mary. I was talking to my father. I wasn't sure you were coming, David. What's in the kettle? Apple butter. Mm, Smells good. Where are your folks? They went over to Cousin Laura's. Mary, uh, do you have to stay out here in the kitchen stirring the jelly? Not jelly, apple butter. Yes, it might stick. Oh, well, I I wanted to tell you something, but I didn't want to tell you in front of a kettle of apple butter. I think you can depend on the kettle of apple butter not to repeat it. I'm going west, homesteading. Father's letting me go, and he's giving me white foot and star so I'll have a good team. And he's loaning me the money to start out on. Oh, well, that's nice. That's very nice, David. I I sure hope you'll be very happy. I'm going to Yankton tomorrow to file on a claim. For $14 and a half, I'll, I'll get me a quarter section. And I can have another quarter section by promising to set out 10 acres of trees and cultivate them for five years. I'll have 320 acres. 320? And then next week, I'm going out to take possession of the claim. I thought I'd build a shanty on it and then come back by Thanksgiving. For you. For me? Well, of course. You didn't think I'd go without you. Oh, David. David. Mary, I... I'm not one of those romantic guys that know how to make a lot of fancy speeches. But I do love you. And I'll do my best to provide for you and make a good home if you'll marry me. Oh, David, I'll be so happy to marry you. Oh, the apple butter, it's burning. Quick, help me take it off the stove. Burnt apple butter, burnt fingers, and burning beautiful sparks of excitement deep inside of me. And at last the words were mine that I'd been waiting for all my life. To have and to hold, to love and to honor, forsaking all others so long as we both shall live. It was Thanksgiving morning, and the world was at its beginning. After the wedding, David and I got on the train. We were on our way to new country, new land, and a new life. sunset, the ride ended, and David took my arm and helped me across the frozen street to the hotel. Early the next day, David piled our things in a big wagon sleigh, and we started for our claim. The strings of sleigh bells on the horses added a bright, gay music to the morning, and it seemed to me as the horses raced towards the horizon that we were flying into the future, and and the whole world belonged to us. But in the afternoon, a level gray cloud began to stretch towards us, and the wind began to rise... 
There's a railroad camp down there. I hope we can make it before the storm breaks. What do you bet we do? Hold on, darling. Hold on. The show proved to be an early rating success. This episode was heard by roughly 14 million people, beating NBC's more established Screen Guild players. I prayed that it would be for us and our children as it had been for our parents and our grandparents. That although the land had come to us free, we had paid for it with honest labor and passed it on to the next generation as a heritage. So that on future Thanksgivings, our children would be able to say, let us be thankful for all the rich fruit of the earth and sun that we have received. Let us be thankful for a free land a free country. In a moment, James Hilton and Martha Scott will be back. But first, may I remind you that Christmas is exactly one month from today. If you haven't already ordered your Christmas cards, better not wait any longer to visit the store where you buy your Hallmark cards. If you prefer to select individual cards for each person on your list, you'll find Hallmark cards that say just what you want to say, the way you want to say it. And there are Hallmark cards for imprinting with your own name and many boxes of assorted Christmas cards. Yes, whatever your taste, whatever your budget... There are Hallmark cards you'll take special pride in sending. And when your friends receive them and look on the back, as you did, they'll see the Hallmark and know you cared enough to send the very best. Here again is James Hilton. One of the rewards for giving a fine performance must be the real satisfaction of knowing that it pleased so many people. Tonight, Martha Scott, you should feel very happy. You've pleased us Hallmark people very much. And I know you've pleased millions of others around the country. Thank you, Mr. Hilton, and I, I guess you're right. There's a lot of satisfaction in the approval of the audience. Uh, by the same token, your Hallmark Playhouse must have won a lot of friends, like your Hallmark cards. Well, we sincerely hope so. As a matter of fact, the Hallmark tradition is built on friendships. And we're going to try to add to that tradition again next week when we present Edna Ferber's great short story, Old Man Minnick, starring Victor Moore. And the following week, we present Woman with a Sword, starring Ida Lupino. The makers of Hallmark greeting cards and everybody at the Hallmark Playhouse join me in the hope that you've found much to be thankful for on this Thanksgiving Day. Until next Thursday, then, this is James Hilton saying good night. Tonight's story was adapted for radio by Gene Holloway with music composed and conducted by Lynn Murray. Our director-producer is Dee Engelbach. Martha Scott appeared through the courtesy of RKO Studios, whose current release is Stations West. Look for Hallmark cards that are sold only in stores that have been carefully selected to give you expert and friendly service. Remember, Hallmark cards when you care enough to send the very best. This is Frank Goss saying goodnight to you all until next week at the same time when James Hilton returns to present Old Man Minnick by Edna Ferber and starring Victor Moore. This program came to you from the Hallmark Playhouse. This is CBS, where 99 million people gather every week, the Columbia Broadcasting System. I was always an actress. 
I guess, always going to be an actress, but I was also a musician. I played double bass viol, and I wound up in the Pasadena Symphony Orchestra, where I played for four years. Then I joined a group called the Singing Strings. We were on staff at CBS for a year. We were on staff at the Mutual Network for a year and a half. And there I started doing commentaries and emceeing and so forth, and I got into little parts, and I decided to give up music, and I sold my bass that night. So I'd never go back to it. And I knew enough people by then that I could go to the stations and say, I'm an actress, and they say, no, you're not, you're a musician. That's a tough transfer from music to acting. But I made it, and from there, loyal people like Jack Webb, and of course I'd done a lot of little theater and so forth, and the Pasadena Playhouse. But Jack Webb, <clears throat> Jack Johnstone, Arch Obler, Norman Corwin, all terribly loyal people. It got me started in television, and from there, Bill Conrad got my first part in pictures, which was Body and Soul. And I found that my face was about as versatile as my voice. I was a character actress from the day I started, and I still am. And that delights me. That's exactly what I want to be. I'm pleased with it. That's my story. <laughs> At 10.30 p.m. opposite Fred Waring on NBC, Campanas' first-nighter program took to the air on CBS. The Little Theater off Times Square was then in its 17th season, and its fifth, with Barbara Luddy and Olin Soule playing leads. Campanas' first-nighter program. From the Little Theater off Times Square. Starring Olin Soule and Barbara Luddy with an all-star cast presented by Campana, the quality name in cosmetics. Theater Time, Broadway. And tonight a new play is scheduled for its premiere performance at the Little Theater off Times Square. If you've never attended an opening night on the Great White Way, then you have the treat of a lifetime in store for you. And here is our host for the evening, the genial first-nighter. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Traffic is slow these wintry nights, so let's be off to an early start, shall we? My cab is waiting. Won't you step in? All right, driver, to the little theater. Up Broadway, across 42nd Street, past the Paramount Theater, the Astor Hotel. And now, just ahead, is the little theater off Times Square. While the show supposedly came from Times Square, it originated from the Merchandise Mart in Chicago until 1946, and then made its way to Hollywood. Although never a true ratings powerhouse, it was still pulling an audience of roughly 12 million people. Was it always sponsored by Campana products? Until the very end of the thing out here, uh, Campana decided they no longer needed it on the air, and they uh, sold it on a royalty basis, and they still own it, mm -hmm. to uh, Miller High Life Beer. Yes. And which was strange. Uh, which was really strange for First Nighter because there was never a mention of drinking. None of the ladies ever smoked. No. And once we said darn in the script and we got so much mail you wouldn't believe. Really? From people uh -huh. saying, when you say darn, you mean damn. And that's just like swearing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Remember that? Yeah, that's right. So when we were sponsored by a beer, that was really... <laughs> A step. Field, Willard Waterman, Virginia Gregg, Jerry Hausner, and other famous names. And now it's just about time for the curtain to rise.
first curtain, the house lights are out, and here's the play. Louise, look at that, will you? What book heads the bestsellers in Terre Haute? Purple Petals by Phoebe St. Clair, published by Allsop Brothers. In Pittsburgh, Purple Petals. In Montreal, Hartford, and Gary, Indiana? Purple Petals by Phoebe Sinclair. Yeah, well, don't stand there repeating my words. Benson and Blake is supposed to be the most aggressive publishing house in the business, and we haven't had a bestseller in two years. Then an upstart firm like Allsop Brothers steals this book from right under our noses. Our noses? Mr. Alan Blake, I've been your secretary long enough for you to know that I insist on accuracy from an employer above all else. Well, what do you mean? Didn't we turn down the... We didn't. When I gave you the Purple Petals manuscript, attached to it were three enthusiastic reports from our three readers and a note of mine. Remember what it said? Uh, well, it's easy to say I told you so. It it's said, all... I wish I'd written this book because it'll sell a million copies. Remember what you said? Well, how on earth do you expect me you to... You said it reminded you of a boiled orange, very soggy pap colored on the outside. Yeah. So I did, and so it is. Yeah, it's in its eighth printing inside a year. Movie rights sold for half a million, and you turned it down. Uh, must have been smoking hashish. But who is Phoebe St. Clair? If we could only find her and tell her that some unauthorized maniac in our office rejected her book, then maybe we'd have a chance at her next one. Well, you've spent scads of B&B's money for detectives to watch the Alsop offices to see if they could discover who Miss Sinclair is. Uh, I've tried everything and not a clue. She hates publicity. Oh, Louise, I've known for some time that Joe Alsop has offered you everything but their printing presses to work for him. Why do you stick here? Oh, I'm just contrary. Or maybe it's that old proverb about rats and a sinking ship. Listen, if we don't get a book that'll sell soon, there just won't be a ship. You want to look at this manuscript now, Mr. Blake? Oh, frankly, Miss Jones, no. What is it? It's called Hard Flows the Sea. By a new writer, Stephen Shad Stronghurst. What do you think of it? Well, honestly, I don't remember when I've been so excited about a book. <laughs> That's what you said about ten acres, and look what that turkey did to us. Well, it's not my opinion alone this time. Both Henderson and Simon have written two pages about it. Well, that's always a help. At least we're sure of three sales if we publish it. Now, what's this? Oh, well, Louise read it, too. That's... Her comment. Hmm. Last time I said, I wish I'd written this book because it'll sell a million copies. At the risk of repeating myself, I'm repeating myself. Louise. Hmm. Anything else, Mr. Blake? No, no. Just tell the switchboard I'm not to be disturbed for the next three hours. Look, Alan, it's after five, and I got a very important date with a very important girl. I don't care if you've got an important date with Rita Hayworth. You stay right here. Oh, well, why me? I'm going to miss the 540. Harry, you know what... you're our publicity director, and this manuscript is so hot, I want you to start thinking about angles pronto. We're putting all our eggs in this 400-page basket. Uh, what's the masterpiece about? Oh, Harry, it's about life and love and all the elements. It's a roisterous, boisterous sea story, and the smell of salt spray stings your eyes as you read it. And after you wipe your eyes, then what? It's Conrad and Jack London and Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, plus women, and in Technicolor. Harry, get on your typewriter. I want the big treatment. Well, I'm glad you agree with me this time that it's a great book. Great book? Why, I couldn't sleep last night just thinking about the possibilities. 
I'm getting this man Stronghurst down here immediately. Have you contacted him? I'm sending him a wire. I've come to the conclusion that the book must be the story of his own life. The life of a reckless, two-fisted, elemental man who could stun a steer with a blow of his fist. A man who could crush a coconut with one calloused hand. But you've never seen Stronghurst. Maybe he's five foot two and talks with a lisp. Oh. <laughs> you disgust me. Here, write this down. Uh, Stephen Shad Stronghurst, at first sight, strikes you as the sort of man about whom legends gather and grow. The story that he uh, crushes coconuts in one calloused hand, apocryphal as it may sound, is the most obvious thing in the world the moment your hand disappears in his immense paw when you're introduced. He uh, is an elemental man. Uh, come in. Will you initial this wire before I send it off, Mr. Blake? Uh, read it to me first, Miss Jones. Mr. Stephen Shad Stronghurst, Box 652, Main Post Office. Your manuscript, Hard Flows the Sea, has vague possibilities. Please drop in this week for a chat. Signed, Alan Blake, Benson and Blake Publishing. You don't want to give Mr. Stronghurst any false hopes, do you? Vague possibilities. The only vague thing about it is who will take the lead when the movies get it, Gary Cooper or Ariel Flynn. Lou, I think you've got a point there. Miss Jones, take out the word vague. And, um, let me see, this week, that's too indefinite. Make it immediately. How does that sound, Lou? Very cordial. Qu that's an idea. Sign it. Very cordially yours. How's that, Lou? Fine. That'll tell him in a lukewarm sort of way that you worship the very keys his calloused fingers type on. but our mailboxes are strictly private. No information as to identity can be divulged. I'm not asking for information. I want to meet Mr. Stronghurst of Box 652. He ignores my wires and my letters. I just want to speak to the man, that's all. Well, I'm sorry, sir. This is a post office, not a date bureau. Goodbye. So, of all the galling, nerve-wracking experiences, this one... Yes? Mr. Howard Creighton, literary editor of the Daily News, is on the other line, Mr. Blake. Well, put him on. Hello, Howard. How are you? Blake, you've got something in this Stronghurst saga. I like it. I'm going to say so in my column. How about a thumbnail biography of the man? I've sent over a character sketch by special delivery. Is it 10% true? Howard, this is too important a thing to joke about. Steve Stronghurst is a simple, down-to-earth man's man. He's been all over the world, mostly traveling steerage. What else has he written? Well, not a thing. Needed money one day, locked himself up in a cheap bistro in Marseille, and batted this book out on a portable pilfered from the local gendarmerie. That's the kind of fellow he is. What kind of jobs has he held? You name him, we got him. He was a bullfighter in Spain, a medicine man in Africa, a monk in Tibet, and taught physics at USC. <laughs> Sounds fabulous enough. What does he look like? Howard, think of the statue of a Greek god. Put some clothes on it, and that's our Steve Stronghurst. You should see his hands, Howard. Great calloused paws that crush a coconut as easily as you or I do an egg. Well, the egg and we. You don't say. You know, Blake, if you're not careful, you're liable to have a bestseller on your hands. And the curtain comes down on the first act of the night's play in the little theater off Times Square. Someone approaching with a stealthy friend. Yes, it's Larry Keating, and again. This particular episode featured Hollywood character actors Virginia Gregg, Herb Butterfield, Jerry Hausner, and Willard Waterman. 
did you feel that by doing two or three voices in a, a show that you were uh, thinning down the pay that you were getting? Would they hire you to do three or four voices? Well, in the beginning, that mm -hmm. was true. And then when AFTRA, the forerunner of AFTRA, came in, why there was a provision on doubling. You could do one voice. And if you did more than that, you got a, a, another fee. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, uh, in later years changed so that you got a fee for whatever you did. Uh, Tom. That was one of the things in radio, which uh, doesn't apply to television. You could play anything you could sound. Anything you could sound and, like. And uh, we all did many different characters on the same show a lot of times. That was your value to the producer or the director, that you we, could double and we were triple sometimes, more I guess? hireable because uh -huh. they knew we could do a couple of different characters. At 11 p.m., radio's primetime closed as all four major networks broadcast news. On the West Coast, as couples cozied up by the fireside, CBS's KNX broadcast the old stalwart Manhattan merry-go-round. The evening was a resounding victory for William Paley. CBS now controlled Thursday night. With the signing of Jack Benny, they would soon control Sunday's ratings as well. The Mary Lee Taylor Program. Brought to you by Pet Milk, America's first evaporated milk. Although Thanksgiving is over, that doesn't mean the food has to come to an end. On Saturday morning at 10 a.m., Mary Lee Taylor presented a few ideas to early rising listeners as to what to do with all those leftovers. Everybody in Mary Lee's kitchen has been working like a beaver for the past few weeks on a new collection of recipes for candies, cookies, and other holiday treats. And today the collection is complete and ready to send you. It's brand new, it's wonderful, it's yours for the asking. Just write to Mary Lee Taylor, care of this station, or to Pet Milk, St. Louis, Zone 1, Missouri, and say you want Holiday Recipes. That's the name of the book, Holiday Recipes. And now it's Mary Lee on NBC. Hello, this is Mary Lee Taylor, extending a warm welcome to all of you from all of us here in my NBC kitchen. The story you'll hear today about Jim and Sally Carter really began when Jim said, Oh, I'm tired of being cooped up in this two-by-four apartment. Tonight I'm going out and have myself a time, and I don't care how much it costs. And what did Sally say to that? Well, like almost any young wife who's had to live on a shoestring... Palm Springs was the real or fictional setting for uh, a number of Jack Benny shows each year. That's right. In the old radio days, we used to go down two or three times a year, mm -hmm. and we'd do a show from Palm Springs that related to Palm Springs or the trip to Palm Springs. But it all had something to do with Palm Springs. The most memorable ones for Jack Benny radio fans is a show he would do first or second week in December from Palm Springs, and it was the Christmas shopping show. Oh, yeah. And Jack would go into the department store, <laughs> and he'd be trying to buy gifts for all the members of the cast, but the whole thing revolved around a gift for Don Wilson. Shoelaces. Shoelaces. <laughs> the generous man. <laughs> <laughs> or golf tees. It could be. Golf tees or uh, cufflinks. Yes.
Next time on Breaking Walls, we pick up with Christmas Week 1948. We'll focus on CBS's rise as the nation's number one network, just as TV was taking its first million viewers away from radio. Reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning, Network Radio Ratings 1932 53 by Jim Ramsberg, articles from Broadcasting Magazine, Radio Daily, and The New York Times, as well as the fantastic work by Dr. Joseph Webb on suspense and Casey Crime Photographer. For more info, see Dr. Webb's sites in the written credits. I'd also like to thank Mark Greenspan for supplying the audio from Penn vs. Cornell. On the interview front, Virginia Gregg, Barbara Luddy, Margaret O'Brien, Olin Soule, Ezra Stone, Willard Waterman, and Don Wilson were with Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. Don Amici, Hans Conried, Stats Cotsworth, John Gibson, Jan Miner, and Vincent Price were with Dick Bertel and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear these at goldenage-wtic.org. Cedric Adams spoke with Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin in 1952. Jack Popoli spoke with Westinghouse in 1970. Jack Benny was interviewed for a 1972 PBS documentary. Barbara Walters spoke with George Burns in 1979. And Virginia Gregg spoke with Spurdvac on August 14, 1982. Selected music featured in today's episode was Sleigh Ride and Jingle Bells by Al Kyola, Riz Ordolani, and Jimmy McGriff. Thanksgiving by Michael Silverman. Greensleeves by Steve Urquiaga. Night Part One Snow by George Winston. And Deck the Halls by J.B. Torres. Subscribe to Burning Gotham, the new audio drama set in 1835 in New York City. It will be available everywhere you get your podcast and at burninggotham.com. Special thanks to the Fireside Mystery Theater, 12 Chimes It's Midnight, and the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society. Find them all on iTunes or at their links in the written credits. A special thank you to Ted Davenport and Jerry Hendages, two radio show collectors who helped supply material for this episode. They're who the large retailers go to. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. And for Jerry, please visit otrsite.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA radio network. Breaking Walls episode 110 will continue our mini-series on the 48-49 radio season. We'll focus on business and programming during Christmas week 1948. This episode will be available beginning December 1st, 2020, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. And support this show 
for as little as one buck a month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So until December 1st, 2020, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode 109, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much, and happy Thanksgiving.